podcast is brought to you by uh, 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 Here we go Everybody be cool, this is a robbery Need you cool Are you cool? Welcome back, all you inglorious bastards, to the Church of Tarantino podcast. I am your host, the Reverend Scott K, and it is my pleasure to welcome you to your fifth installment of Under the Influence, where each month during our second season, myself, along with my special guests, will be taking an inquisitive look at two films that influenced Tarantino to see if he just referenced them in his films or blatantly ripped them off. Our fifth film that we will be placing under the microscope is Tarantino's first film adapted from source material. I'm talking about 1997's Jackie Brown. And the films that we will be reviewing this month are Jack Hill's American Black Exploitation films, Coffee and Foxy Brown. But before we get this investigation underway, it is my pleasure to welcome back to the show, making his third main episode appearance, the host of such podcasts as the Asian Cinema Film Club, the Movies and Tea Podcast, the TV Good Sleep Bad Podcast, and the Game War Podcast, all the way from England, it's Mr. Elwood Jones. And making her first official main episode appearance, musician, composer, and lead singer of alt-rock bands Noise of Rumors and Kid Electric, all the way from California, it's Miss Sin Electric. Welcome back, both of you. M.A. Tarantino, be with you always. The two of you were together, I believe, on Death Proof panel, correct? Yes. Yes? Yeah. Yes, I believe so. Because, Sin, you've been on two panels. E, uh, Elwood, you were on one panel, but then you've been on three episodes, and this will be her first main yep. episode. Been making up for it on this season. <laughs> yes, you were my new guest this season. All the old guests I've told the fuck off and get new ones in here. No. <laughs> <laughs> it was interesting when I reached out uh, to talk about the start of the season and find out who wanted to do what films and this and that and tell everyone what I was going to do. You just both happened to respond differently that you both wanted to do the Jackie Brown episodes yeah. for the Black Station films. And I was like, that's very cinematic uh, that we have put each other together. So, Mr. Jones, what is new in your world besides have you created another podcast that you do to stay away from your family? It's so Perfect. funny you say this. Uh, yes. As of last night, we went into production for a spinoff from Asian Cinema Film Club. We are now going to be doing a spinoff show called the World Cinema Film Club. Uh, where we're going to be cutting out all the Asian cinema. All the American cinema is also going to be cut out as well. And we're basically looking at the rest of the world and what it has to offer. Because when you think of world cinema, you think of a lot of like heavy drama. You think of a lot of, sort of art house stuff. And people forget that like Italy has got like giallo movies and yes. zombie movies. We can go to Australia and look at exploitation movies. Yes. There's all these interesting places, like even places like Iran, which did a fantastic movie called Big Bad 
Mad Wolves, which uh, Tarantino himself came out and vouched heavily for. You can like even go to Russia, which, while it's perhaps not everyone's favorite place in the world, <laughs> has also done some has a great cinematic legacy from everything from Tarkovsky with like Stalker, all the way through to uh, things such as like Night Watch and Day yes. Watch. So there's just this breadth of world cinema out there. And it's equally a chance for me to cross off so much of like the stuff that's on my watch list because so much time, like if you just set yourself, oh, I'm going to watch these films, you never get around to it because you're just like something comes up. It's not the right time. You do a podcast. It's like the gun being put to your head. It's like, you will watch this. (laughs) You will watch eight and a half. (laughs) Um, So it's, it's finally giving me a chance. And the first episode we're putting out is going to be a gray wrath of God, which is a Herzog movie which I'm very excited to see because I've never seen it. But Steven's a big fan of that one. And where we're going from there, I have no clue. It's all up in the air. But yes, I'm making more podcasts because that's apparently what I do now. I just have a cottage industry of it. You just want to get into British films. That's what you really want to do. Because technically that's world for you. So you <laughs> No, I, I, that would, as we said on your episode, it's sort of like, when you look at a lot of British cinema, it's a lot of like heavy family drama and kitchen scenes. <laughs> There's obviously good stuff in Britain. I mean, obviously we have things such as like uh, Long Good Friday, sort of like a lot of Michael uh, Caine movies, a lot of Bob Hoskins movies in there that are really sort of good. But at the same time, I don't want to talk about Kez or The Loneliness of the Long Distance Runner. I kind of just want to talk about weird exploitation subgenres from like i said italy and australia these weird these places where we forget that they have film industries yeah um, mexico mexico is another great one you got films like just like in Maurice perez mm-hmm. uh you you um there's just it, every time you're afraid. like yes exactly yes which is a film which i've been kind of obsessed with since we covered it over movies and tears oh uh, it's surprising that shudder got that yeah of like all the platforms it's shadow the ones who get it and it's just this amazing movie and i can't wait to see what she does next which i believe is the movie she's doing with del toro which is a western movie with werewolves well she also just uh was the director of the new season of true detective that's up in alaska uh with mrs see i've tuned out true detective from like season two it's so like i've got that and i've got three seasons of fargo still to watch it's if it's on tv it's like so far in the, in the i smell another there. podcast coming up are you going to continue Asian? Are you keeping Asian yes. cinema? Okay. Asian Cinema Film Club is not going anywhere. Because even though we're recording this now, and this is being heard in May, I will be on, I think the next episode yeah. is the next one that comes out, right? It's a little self-promotion. It's really not about your podcast. It's about yeah. me. We uh, had you on <laughs> to talk about uh, Ricky O, the story of Ricky. The story of Ricky. I have not gotten over that one yet, so that's a good one. <laughs> it's a prison movie. It's Kung Fu Weird. <laughs> it's so many fantastic things. It's everything. It's everything, yes. Miss Sin Electric, the only person on this podcast who has actually touched the hand of God himself, (laughs) Quentin Tarantino. Apparently, your music that you gave him inspired him to write a movie about a a critic. So I don't know what that means, but what has been going on in your world since, I mean, the last time you were on, you had just given him that. Your world was in a tizzy. You had released your own uh, EP, which is still unbelievable. I hope enough people uh, listen to it. It's always in my uh, show notes. But you have a new band. Why don't you tell us a little bit what's going on in the world of electric? (laughs) 
So yeah, I have a new band called The Kid Electric, Kids spelled with two Ds. Um, it includes some old and new members of my old band, Ways of Rumors. Um, kind of just wanted a fresh start and uh, get a little bit more into a rock type vibe versus the more like rock pop or like synth pop, I guess, that I, we were doing with noise rumors we're kind of leaning towards that close to the end of our uh adventures <laughs> or whatever but um yeah this new band uh still working on on some stuff uh, hopefully we'll have something out uh probably by the summer i would hope but um as soon as we are able to get our studio finished up and practice practicing and um we'll be able to perform live and obviously release like a single and yeah we'll be yeah. Very exciting. How much of your solo stuff that you put out over the pandemic and of your Crazy 88 EP, will you force them to learn and play because they could be some real bangers that you just throw out in the club to get people going? Probably none. <laughs> I want Damn kind it. of everything to be like like pretty much a fresh start. Um, if there is anything that we kind of recycle, it might be some old or I guess new to a lot of people, Noise of Rumor songs that we only performed a few times that hmm. didn't make it to any EPs. They're on SoundCloud. Like all our, I guess, current ish stuff is all in soundcloud but nothing that we uh, were too proud of to, i guess i guess to release i not in the sense of like the songs are bad but just that they weren't mixed very well they weren't professionally mixed or mastered or anything so they do have a grittiness to them so we never really wanted to put them on spotify yet right right before we kind of stopped uh, uh practicing and stuff like that right before the pandemic we were getting into the mode of recording everything and getting it sent out and then everything kind of happened and everything fizzled out so yeah but uh, i mean maybe shame from crazy 88 might be able to make it into there if anybody's familiar with that song um but i don't i don't think any any of my uh, other solo stuff kind of just gonna leave that where it really? is really oh it's disappointing i mean because i love your solo <laughs> stuff but but you're look at you're like tarantino you did it once you're like i'm done with that shit i don't want to do that <laughs> <laughs> however can i make one request since we're about this is be a good segue if a new movie is coming out sometime <laughs> down the road if that's what this is yes. and you know my plans over here in america and i do have plans for my fellow friends over in the uk so they, they don't force them to fly over to the united states and then travel across the united states picking up other people to go to California, where you live, would you or your band be willing to play our after party, your Crazy 88 album? We will. I will get people on the podcast to send money to, to pay for you to do it. I'm not gonna. This isn't, this isn't like no. work for your supper kind of shit. But no, no, no. It would just be. Ha I could definitely play some of those songs. I would have to practice them with the band, of course. I mean, Robert Rodriguez and Chingon. Play, I'm just saying they play the Kill Bill rap party. I'm, look, I'm. You know, I'm not gonna put any pressure on you. Yeah, I'd have to put more more pressure on the band than anything else to convince them to play some instrumentals here and there. But you didn't come here to listen to old news because it's too much down the road. You came here to listen to us talk about one of his most underappreciated films, but we're going to talk about two films that heavily influenced Tarantino. Maybe not so much the film Jackie Brown, but there's definitely some influences, but they are two really cool-ass movies with the great Pam Greer. Now, I did have the pleasure of have Sin on for the Jackie Brown special. You were not Elwood, you were, as we said, Death Proof. But how do, real quickly, how does Jackie Brown resonate for both of you? And do you still feel, or do you feel eventually it will rise above the bottom three in his filmography for people on their list. I will let Sin start first, since we had you start first with last time. Oh, 
how do you feel, Jackie? How does Jackie Brown impact you? And do you feel that it'll ever climb out of the bottom three? I always feel like it's in people's bottom three of his filmography currently because of how underappreciated it is. Because it is unfortunately stuck between Pulp Fiction, Kill Bill, what I call the two touchstones for two different generations. Gen X, Pulp Fiction's touchstone. For millennials, it's Kill Bill. Unfortunately, in between is Jackie Brown, which some believe is his masterpiece, is his true masterpiece above all the rest. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, um, obviously, I mean, I even said this on the other uh, podcast episode where I do feel it's it's the one overlooked movie of his and a lot of people are turned off by the fact that it is an an adaptation of of uh elmer leonard's book uh, rum punch i think as you get older and you watch this movie it gets better and better like i mean i watched it when i was pretty young and i still enjoyed it there i I enjoyed it more so for the the comedy and the, the the brief action the the uh you know little sneaking around and you know who's playing who kind of thing you i enjoyed it more in in the entertainment type of way or in, but as i got older i felt more for jackie and then as i got even older i started <laughs> feeling more for for max and there's there's things and aspects of that movie that i think you can literally just grow old with this movie and you can understand it in so many different ways and you can feel for each character in so many different ways i mean i'm pretty sure i've said this before but if you haven't seen it in quite some time and maybe you didn't think that highly of it before i think watching it uh, in at a later time in your life it definitely has a different impact i mean at least for me and i've heard from other people as well it it does age really well um, with you (laughs) I think she's taking a shot, especially me, since, yes, it's been 25 years, and I was 22 when I saw it, so it is more than double my life since I, since it came out. And, yes, now I am fucking Max Cherry. Actually, I think I'm Jackie's age and that Max was in his 50s. But, yeah, no, yeah, it really does hit home as opposed to when you're watching it, you're 22, you're like, oh, that's a cute movie, and then you're like, no, that's, really, that's, that's my story. <laughs> it really does change. It does. It ages like fine wine. It really does. If you watch it young, you're like, oh, that's okay. But as you get older, you go, oh, no, that's really about adult mature love right there. And, you know, it really does kind of make me feel old. Thank you, Sin. Elwood, I don't know how old you are, but you're probably not my age. But how's it, how's it hit <laughs> you? You're, right, so you're, a little, you're getting there. Yeah. You're, you're feeling it now. You're like, yeah, I understand these people. I am these people. <laughs> yeah, it's true. You you age into Jackie Brown. When you, the older you get, the the more you sort of like you resonate with it because as I said, it is an older couple. Uh, obviously, with uh, Pam Greer and um, Robert Forrester. At the same time, the fact it's Robert Forrester and Pam Greer means that you don't mind the fact it's an older couple because, as I said, it is Robert Forrester and Pam Greer. They're like two of the closest actors you want, and they're doing this romantic scene together. And credit to Robert Forrester, he's probably the only male like co-star that she's had who she's doing romantic scenes with who didn't look immediately flustered like snoop dogg will smith whenever they said it and then you hear the background stories it's all like oh yeah they were just like giggly schoolboys. it's like they go to go and make up with pound gray so like she said years after uh, even some of the guys in these movies we're about to talk about don't handle it well it's so sort of like years after her black exploitation like um height she's still making uh getting young boys giggly so but no, with uh, Jackie Brown, I think you definitely, you appreciate it more the older you get, and you also appreciate when you start looking at the little details that Tarantino includes, the fact that he cast um, Michael Keaton, because Michael Keaton played the same role in Out of Sight, so great. and he wanted to 
have create this um our learned world but the fact is as i said because it's not his own work i don't think that it sort of sits with the others as well and the fact that it sort of descends into this this one big bag swap the casting choices are really where it sort of comes comes into its own certainly provides this longevity and again it's just pound great first i there's two actors that i can just watch over and over again and their scenes are definitely the strongest in the film uh samuel jackson is just doing samuel jackson robert de niro feels a little lost but he has some good moments such as like when he's um sitting with the chick and she's doing the whole supremes <laughs> thing that those bits work and like when he shoots the um the stone chick yes <laughs> but though he has like, like moments within within this at the same time there's other bits that i sort of like attract me such as like Samuel Jackson's weird facial hair. It's just like annoys me the whole way through. And it's um his choice, by the way. His choice. It wouldn't surprise me, it's his choice. He's always there for making quirky choices when he's given like characters and stuff. So but no, I think it's as time has gone on, I think like Death Proof, I think we've reappraised it and mm-hmm. it's certainly shifted its position and was things such as like I say like Reservoir Dogs, the ones that are more sort of like ingrained now in our pop culture have sort of slipped down more sort of in the, in the rankings as you've sort of like seen a hundred times. It's so like, how many times can we just do the Royal Cheese line? How many times can we just do um like what Madonna's like, Virgin's like? And then you go to the lesser watch ones, as I said, like Death Proof and Jackie Brown, you start yeah. appreciating them more because it feels a little fresher. Because as I said, no one is quoting Jackie Brown. No one's certainly doing lines from Death Proof. Um, and I think that's what keeps them fresh. And I think this now people have stopped talking about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Because when that came out, the Pure Cinema podcast, like every episode, it's all like, gush, 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 gush. <laughs> like this. And it's like, I just don't want to talk about this movie anymore. And now we've got a few years uh, space between it. It's all like, oh, you know, mm-hmm. this is, uh, this is I can appreciate this now. So, so I just hold out for the fact that he's going to work with Pam Greer again. So, so unfortunately. Unfortunately, we have to say, shut the fuck up to Elwood for a while, because this poor gentleman has been on three times. He got his first one for Reservoir Dogs. He got his questions. He brought his buddy on for the second time. For the very next week in True Romance, he had to sit there and didn't get a second bunch of questions, because every time there's a new guest, they get their questions. He makes it on for a third time in five episodes, and once again must sit there quietly while I ask another new guest her first questions. So I apologize to Mr. Jones, but I thank you for always being on. Miss Electric, it is your turn. It is your turn to get your questions. Your first one, I'm pretty sure I know this. I'm No one can see because this is audio. But visually, while I'm looking at I can see a lot of posters hanging up in your room. So, question one. Are you, in fact, a Tarantino fan? Or are you just fucking with me by hanging up posters right before we record? I'm totally fucking with you. I actually had some other posters of... Um... <laughs> All Adam Sandler films all the time. <laughs> all all his Netflix ones. The, the director that you were like kind of shitting on. Michael fucking Bay. God damn it. I, I will totally end this call now. <laughs> Next time I'm gonna have nothing but Michael Bay posters in the background. Oh, I, I might have to do a spin-off podcast. Just mm, down by the bay is what we'll call it. Yes. Oh, that's awesome. That'd be great. <laughs> I'm good with coming up with names. I you know, I don't yeah. know if I can pull it off. <laughs> 
Yes, I have been a fan of Tarantino's movies since I was pretty young. I actually have no idea how old I was. Maybe uh, probably early teenager, maybe coming into my 20s, I think. Um, I can't remember. I wasn't allowed to watch a lot of movies growing up. So I was very stuck on very old television, very old movies, um, a lot of black and white stuff, a lot of uh, public television, Sesame Street crap. <laughs> you know, even as I was getting older, I was we, were, we just weren't allowed to watch a lot of stuff. So I think Tarantino's films were my introduction to a more adult cinema. And I think that might be why they've stuck with me for so long or why I hold on to them initially. I think uh, obviously there's plenty of other reasons to love his movies, but I think that's why they made such a big impact because the very first film I watched was was Reservoir Dogs and I, my mind was just blown like, I was like, holy crap, <laughs> This, are these what what all these movies that I wasn't allowed to watch? Is this how they all are? Because I mean, I'm into this. This is cool. But um, yes, uh, short answer: yes, I'm I'm a big uh, Tarantino fan, of course. You may have just also answer the second question with what was your gateway drug into Tarantino verse? I, I think I pretty much watched them uh, in order. I don't. I'm trying to think. Um, I think I didn't watch Jackie Brown until after the first Kill Bill, only because I didn't know Jackie Brown was a thing. Um, I had watched Reservoir Dogs because my sister had given it to me for one of my birthdays. And then I was like, I need more. I need more. I need more. And then obviously the the one to go to is Pulp Fiction. So, And it's crazy because I don't remember watching it for the first time, but I remember being really young and seeing the infamous Pulp Fiction poster in a um, video rental store that was kind of close by to where I lived. And I was just like, I got to watch that movie. Like, I really, I whatever that movie is. And I was small. I, I don't even know. I, I might have been nine, maybe younger. I, I knew I was not allowed to watch that whatsoever. But the poster looked so cool that I, I the only thing that I can remember is when I finally was able to wa- uh, watch it or when I had it, you know, whatever it was. I don't know if it was DVD or VHS at the time. I was like, I finally get to see this movie that, you know, I've I've had in the back of my head for so long. But um, yeah, Reservoir Dogs would have been my my first. And I mean, it was all downhill from there. <laughs> <laughs> and now you're on a Tarantino podcast. How about That's that? Crazy. What is your favorite Tarantino film? Oh, my God. I hate this question more than anything. <laughs> Most of my guests do. But it wouldn't be a church if we didn't make you feel uncomfortable. So True. Very, very, very true. Um, I want to say Hateful Eight, um, even though there's a lot of times where, uh, I mean, for most of my life, it was uh, Jackie Brown and Kill Bill um, was a huge, huge part of my growing up. Like, I was obsessed with it. But as I've gotten older and when Hateful Eight came out, and you've taken the time to look at all the films that he's been inspired by, the soundtracks that he's been inspired by, everything... I, that movie is such a masterpiece. I know some people get so bored with how dialogue heavy it might be or how certain parts might feel a little slow paced. I like that about it. I like that he took his time and there's so much to love. It's not even just the, the obvious the storyline, the fact that it's a, a, a you know murder mystery, the fact that you get to be kind of a part of that murder mystery aspect and trying to figure out who's you know who done it kind of thing. Um, and the shots are so awesome. The music, I mean, there's even a, um, a whole movie dedicated to Ennio Morricone doing the score. I don't know if you've seen it. It's on Amazon. It's 
amazing to see them go through the whole process of even making the record there as well at, at Abbey Road Studios. I mean, you see all these little tiny bits and pieces, all these little ingredients that made that movie, you start to appreciate it a lot more. And I think that's why that movie is like really stuck with me in that sense. But yes, it's it, it'll, it'll definitely change. But I, I feel like I always go back to Hateful Eight because it's just... I'm always so wowed by it and it's hilarious as well, which is great. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's in my top three. It's made its way there. And I think it's his, I know it's going to sound blasphemous, but I think it may be his best script he ever wrote. I think just everything that comes in that movie. But yeah, I think a lot of people don't like it because uh similar reasons why they don't like Jackie Brown. It's slow. The violence isn't right away, you know? So, but I, yeah, I do love it. The more I watch it, the, the better and better it gets every time. So. In your opinion, what is his most underrated film? Jackie Brown, of course. I, I think Jackie Brown and Death Proof go head to head, but I think Jackie Brown for sure. And for all the reasons I stated before, it was just a lot of people are turned off by it because it's an adaptation. But I mean, it's his script. It's not, it's just, you know, they gave you, he was just handed, here's here's what it can be about. And he he, he kind of veers off here and there. Uh, he does from, quite a bit. So, I mean, it's unfair to just kind of brush that, you know, away and just think like, oh, well, I don't want to watch it or I don't want to see it again or I don't want to give it a chance or kind of just go into it with like this negative mindset. The fact that he's what he's able to do with the source material and how like he's able to make it so Tarantino-esque, it's beautiful. Like, uh, I think that that movie is just his soul and his um, he's trying to pay homage to so many different things that he um grew up with i mean he grew up with nothing but obviously 70s cinema and all that stuff but he was raised by the men that his mother dated who i think a majority of them were um black mm -hmm. and him to go see uh black films black exploitation films so i mean he grew up seeing all that stuff and you see all the the care that he put into Jackie Brown, I feel to just pay homage to all that stuff and his upbringing. I think that's what makes it so special in in a different way as well, more so than obviously like the greatest mm -hmm. parts of the movie and everything. There's so much more to it. There's so much this this awesome um, foundation to it for sure. Yeah, he pays homage to a black exploitation without it becoming a black exploitation film, yes. which he pulls all the exploitation parts completely away from it. So. And allows the characters to be who they are. Who is your all-time favorite character in the vast Tarantino-verse? God, that is the worst. What, is, what are you trying to do? Well, they just keep going. I mean, wait. Wait till I ask you who you, who would you kill and keep. <laughs> oh, you, you no! know, wait till we get to those. <laughs> I'm trying to. Oh, my God. I, I I saw your questions, but I didn't. I was like, you know what? I'm going to get them on the fly. I want to see like what my initial reaction is to these. Because I, <laughs> I don't know. Oh, my goodness. I feel like I had to give it to Beatrix because I I I don't think I had ever other than actually no I think she might be the first uh like female action star that I had seen growing up and I thought that was really fucking cool and like I said I I didn't wasn't allowed to watch a lot of stuff so don't be too <laughs> people listening don't be too Sorry? harsh for me I, I know there's plenty of other actions uh, female action stars out there but at the time I had never seen uh you know, sword wielding woman kicking everybody's ass and uh, going for revenge. So that was, that was a huge deal for me seeing that. And she, I think that made a huge impact and it wasn't done in, in a tasteless way. It wasn't when I would see other films later on, it was like, Oh, here's this female hero, whoever she is, but let's make sure that we exploit her in some way. Kind of like how Jack Hill's, you know, films, how like the black exploitation film, um, genre is where it's very exploitative of 
of women and making sure you got that boob scene in there and you make sure you got this and that. It doesn't feel that way with with his films and especially with with Kill Bill. And I think I think Beatrix kind of I think will always be, if not my favorite now, but one of for sure. And last but not least, since we may be circling the final film, whose career would you like to see given a boost? in the last Tarantino film, if it is, in fact, the last Tarantino film. I would be really disappointed if she didn't at least get, like, a very, very small role. But I would really love to see Pam Greer one last time. Ooh, a second second go-around. Like, honestly, it could just be, like, something really small, kind of how um, Sam Jackson's uh, character is in Kill Bill 2, I think he appears. That that short little thing, you know. Mm -hmm. Plays the piano player. Exactly. And I think having her be in it somewhere would be really cool. I think all if he could kind of go back and, and just pick you know people here and there just to have like this kind of what he's done with his with a lot of his films if not all of them where he's like okay harvey Keitel's not going to be in this film but we're going to use his voice you know for uh was it inglorious bastards you know things like that where it's like you kind of do a little callback to these older films that he's done and i feel like he's paying his respect to you know how he first started out which is great and i think Whoever he ends up choosing in these in his final film, that I, I hope that he does do a little callback to some of our our favorites, but Pam Greer for sure. <laughs> All right, speaking of Pam Greer, it is time to go into the black exploitation world of Pam Greer. The time has come to find out if Quentin Tarantino is a cinematic genius who has put his own spin on the references he's cherry-picked from some of his favorite films that have influenced his career. Or if he's, as his detractors say, a talentless hack who has blatantly ripped off moments from those films and claimed them as his own. This month's suspect is Jackie Brown. Let the investigation begin. And our first film is from 72. It is Coffee. It's time to call. Our first witness. Our first witness is the 1973 American black exploitation film Coffee, written and directed by Jack Hill. A sexy black nurse takes vigilante justice against an inner city drug dealer after her sister becomes their latest victim. Starring Pam Greer, Booker Bradshaw, Robert DeCoy, William Elliott, Alan Arbus, and Sid Haig made on a budget of $5,000 and grossing $4 million at the box office, with a 6.8 IMDb rating and a 78 critics and 75 audience score on Rotten Tomatoes. Now taking the witness stand, coffee. Now, in doing the research for this, I'm going to be honest, did not know Jack Hill was white. Did not know that the writer-director of these two films that are black exploitation films that are considered two of the earmarks of black exploitation that he was a white man i mean i guess i shouldn't be surprised because tarantino dives into it, but i was that was a head scratcher right off the bat i thought for sure that jack hill was a black man from either new york city or from california he was a director in that field when i had to look him up and i you know i click on his name and it comes up on wikipedia and it's this white man looking back at me i was like get the fuck out of here a white man wrote these and it was just interesting to see this movie. I just was like, wait a minute. So wait a minute, the Black Exploitation film was written by a white guy? That just didn't didn't jive with me. Did either of you both know before going in that the writer-director was, of both films, because he is the writer-director of both these films, was white? Yeah. You did know that? Okay. Well, I at least did. one of us um, did. Yeah. Jack Hill was uh, Tarantino mainstay. Um, mainstay. He did uh, Switchblade Sisters as well, mm-hmm. which was released for the Rolling Thunder Pictures label. Yeah, Jack Hill, uh, much like Larry Cohen, who did Black Caesar, another white guy. 
Barry Cohen also having the reputation for being able to make the most bizarre things scary, such as like babies and yogurt. Uh, <laughs> but that's sorry for another podcast. Um, but yeah, these uh, the, <laughs> there's very few actual black directors working within black exploitation cinema. Obviously, you've got Van Peebles who did uh, Sweetback's Badass Song. He was a uh, obviously a black guy. His son Mario is uh, we're going to be an actor and uh, appear in that film as well. And it was the, the darndest thing, and I think it's the fact that when you look at who is behind a lot, a lot of these pe- people, it's people like Corman and that is like New World Pictures, uh, where he is basically taking guys straight out of film school, giving them a script and a budget and saying, go, go make this. And uh, yeah, with Jack Hill, he was just, he's a working director. He was just given scripts and budgets and just went off and did what needed to be done. He wasn't like a, an auteur. He's not the generation with like real sort of auteur I mean, it's really sort of like Spielberg, Scorsese, like Lucas, it's that generation that would be the ones who would go off and like create the auteur theory and have like more control over their films with people like Jack Hill. He's just, as I said, he just give me a script, give me a crew. I'll go off and make your film. He's that sort of uh, director. So when it comes to by station cinema, I think it, you often have to like look at the the actors, the people in front of the camera, rather than the people behind the camera who are sort of making the most movies. And yes, there are obviously people in terms of like soundtrack, like James Brown obviously did the soundtrack to Black Caesar completely off script. Isaac Hayes does Shaft and goes on to star in Truck Turner as well. Um, so there's many key figures but a lot of them are doing sort of soundtracks or they're in front of the camera rather than the ones in the director's chair where it's sort of like few and far between the uh the actual black actor black uh directors being there well thank you that was a wealth of knowledge that even i did not know so <laughs> i was just blown away that here we go you know we've got a white man doing a black exploitation film but then again it's very tarantino of it now for those of you who have never seen a black exploitation film especially a film from the 70s it's a lot like being um and i'm not sure how you how many of you've seen yourself mr jones but if you're not familiar with jive talk from the 70s then this can feel a lot like a the movie snatch or lock stock smoking barrels where it's a lot of slang and takes a bit to get into to understand what is being said so i of course, I'm old enough, but I remember Jive Talk. I remember when it would be on the 70s shows, especially in the 80s when you would hear it. And then, obviously, it's a vernacular that has long since disappeared. Every now and again, it's brought back to life if you watch the Dave Chappelle show from the uh, early 2000s. But those of you who have never heard Jive Talk, it is a different form of dialect that you have to kind of get used to. But it's a very cool form of dialect, much like listening to your countrymen speak in their slang when we listen to snatch or lock stock smoking two smoking barrels did either of you have a difficult time with the jive and how familiar were you with the jive dialogue of the era i didn't have any issue with it at all um my understanding anything to to be honest um i don't remember when i first watched uh coffee or foxy brown i don't think i ever had an i i just was so mesmerized by by Pam Greer and 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 the the whole um, plot of revenge on, on in both films. Yeah, I don't think I had a, any any time where I was like, huh. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it was pretty pretty straightforward. I mean, you you have a a, a gun. <laughs> she has a, a sawed off shotgun pointed at your head. Uh, last thing you're paying attention to is uh, what she's saying. <laughs> <laughs> she just wanted to put that away. <laughs> 
Mr. Elwood. Uh, no, again, I had no uh, issues with the dialects. And I think when you look at any sort of like cultural movement, which has its own dialect from like the beat generation, obviously into jive talk, even to like even the sort of modern hip hop scene, you the more you sort of listen to it and study in the immersive experience like this, you pick up things and you tune your ear to it rather quickly. And I think because the these two films in particular are so visual, as uh, Sim pointed out, once, uh, once Pam Grier's got a sort of shotgun, he's like, like, what else do we need to really <laughs> say in this matter? It's so like, and I think it really adds a lot to the sort of style and the flair. As I said, these were, while these were films that were being like derided by, um, some members of the black community the others who are like sort of like seeing this sort of like this embracement of like figures that they saw within their neighborhoods it's sort of like that's why you have characters such as like the pimp the hard-working single mothers these are people that they were sort of like it would sort of like resonate with and these guys also standing up against the man the the white man who's pushing them back and you've got like these cool guys and girls who are just like fighting back they're taking things in their own hands it kind of like when you watch enter the dragon and you've got that scene where Jim Kelly like beats up the cops and steals their car. And Tarantino's like said, is slow like you would go and see that in black cinema and they'd be like hooting and hollering, like like cheering on like Jim Kelly's like just took one back for uh, the community. So but I think with these films they're very accessible. Um it's not like some of the films such as like, you know, Superfly or like uh, Sweetback Sweetback's Badass Song, which is sort of more as I said, because they're more sort of ingrained in the culture. I think they're a little kind of a little more sort of slanted and then you obviously think looks at things like Coffee and Shaft which is a little more sort of accessible, this sort of the entry point into this uh, this world. Watching as a white audience, you always feel like you're the tourist in this world. Um, I think if you you sort of like look at this and sort of like, oh yeah, I'm totally part of this culture, you come off like these white kids are into rap music and it's like, no, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I think because Tarantino's obviously, as he said already, he's like grew up in predominantly black neighborhoods. His friends were sort of black and he was very so ingrained in this community. And we see it the same with like Eminem who grew up in like Detroit and like the lower sides. And he, again, he just grew up in predominantly black communities. And it's when you're in, in, involved in that community and it's what you're growing up with it's a very sort of different appreciation than when you just sort of like are playing twisters most of us are through watching these movies and just sort of like getting the idea of what the community is um and it can be said the same for like hong kong cinema not just black exploitation so anything sort of this thing where you think oh i just because i watch all this that i understand what it is it's like no you're always just a tourist in this world you don't really understand the struggle well put sir well put now you both said shotguns you left out the titties part there was titties and shotguns in the one of the first things like that's one of my notes i'm like titties and shotguns like it is the ultimate male movie it really is a woman with her breasts out and she's got a shotgun and she the the head being blown off is probably the best special effects in both movies the first one the rest of them get a little little dicey but the first one especially at the end of this movie when the one guy gets dragged around which we'll get to now Jack Hill has a big problem with drugs because both of these movies are about women who are tired of drugs being in their community and they're going to get revenge on them. It was very odd. I was wondering why Jack Hill, what he thought was the biggest plight for the communities he was writing about. There's a lot bigger problems. Now, not that the drugs in the 70s weren't bad, not that they weren't being pushed, but we, we're not even in the crack area yet. We haven't even hit crack. That's in the 80s. It was just interesting to see that here he is. The stories about both stories of drugs, there's just different characters playing them. In both of them, she's smoking hot, which 
That's, I mean, she is unbelievably hot. Like, I was like, God damn. She is, wow. Like, no wonder all, no wonder the dude got shot in the face. No wonder he didn't see the shotgun coming. It's interesting that also in the writing that for how the story kind of starts is Pam pretends to be this woman who is hooked on drugs. And she needs someone's help to get her unhooked on drugs. And instead of someone taking her to a clinic or a rehab center, she's got to fuck some dude so then he'll help her. I just thought it's like... Okay, I guess in the 70s it was just a different time. But why do we think that Mr. Hill went with the drug aspect for both of these films? And why did Mr. Tarantino stay away from those when it comes to his films and his paying homage towards these type of movies? I think it's a lot to do with the, the culture of at the time. I mean, obviously, when you look at the people who are pushing the drugs, it's sort of like the pimps and the drug dealers. These are people who are bringing disrepute to the community because you've got the community who are like just the hardworking folks that are trying to work their way up. And obviously, they're held back because at the time, obviously, the 70s, there's a lot of racial bias at the time. And you have people such as like the pimps and the pushers who are just basically creating this idea, especially in white communities, of what the community at large is about. So by having these characters villainized, especially in these two movies, because it shifts depending on which film you're watching, whether like the film is more sort of like the hero character, if you're looking like Rudy Ray Moore's films, he's obviously um, sort of like a, a pimp. Uh, Superfly's obviously a pimp. Sweetback's also a pimp. It's so like it depends on where you're watching, whether the character's like seen as a hero. And I think it's it's also who they're going up against. In this case, it's obviously Coffee's going up um, against other black men. Um, so obviously, they, it's easy to have them as villainized because, uh, and you see this especially in Foxy Brown, where you've got the vigilante uh, community there, just like they're beating up the the drug the drug pushers and they're putting them on the train out of town, <laughs> which I just like really love. They just like you have some amazing slack through, and then they throw him in a car, and it's all like, oh, don't worry, we're going to put him on the train. <laughs> so like, oh, is that I mean they're going to bury him, or he's actually going to be like put on a stage car out of town? But it's, uh, I think, as I said, with this, it was sort of like, you know, these are the people. Who, uh, it's easy to an easy identical villain, obviously, because of they're going to be the people in the community who can still be seen as like the wrongdoers, the ones who are like bringing down uh, the people, the unscrupulous types, as in particular. And we obviously see that because these are just horrible, slimy thugs, and they're. Captain Spaulding himself appears twice and gets killed twice in a horrible <laughs> way. So I have noticed in the in the watching of these films that no matter what genre so far or what era, from the forties to at least the seventies so far, men are fucking pieces of shit to women. And why I think that might be important is considering that Tarantino grew up, as you said, he dated his mom dated a lot of uh, a black gentleman, but his roommates that his mom had was an Hispanic woman and a black woman who I believe they were all, I'm trying to remember what he said when we were at the event, they may have all been nurses or they all worked together. So the three of them worked together. So he comes from a multicultural, basically family, once he gets to live in L.A. and stays with his mom. And it's just interesting that he sees movies that do nothing but show horrific things to women and men just being terrible to them. And yet he never really portrays that in his films. He, uh, well, obviously Jackie makes her comeback in this, and that probably is one of the reasons he goes the way he does. But he doesn't go with any of the raping. Uh, we talked about it a couple episodes back. But the only person who is a simulated rape is when we talk about the bride. And we see her memory recollection of Buck, but never the actual act. And she gets brutal revenge on this dude. Where 
it's just a very interesting to be have so much downloaded. And you know, back I come from the era where everyone thought that you know you people committed crimes because of rap albums and because of video games and all this stuff. You would think that if anyone was going to have a movie where women would be just abused and horrible things happen to them and them never really rise above, it would be Tarantino because that's what he was fed. But he actually went the opposite with that. And why do we think that is? Why do you think that Tarantino has fed this information? I mean, from the 40s through the 70s of movies where, I mean, women are basically unable to breathe from the 40s to the 50s. They're unable to do anything without a man around. Then after that, they, I mean, they get hit and smacked in every film that I have watched almost now of coming up on some of these. And they're brutalized in a lot of these films. And yet he, some point in his life, said when he became a director that that's not going to happen. That if for some reason these women are brutalized with these men, that what happens to them is going to be 20 times worse than what they even thought about doing to the women. What do we think is the reason? Is it the upbringing? Is it the movies did something to his psyche that said, this is not what I want to do? What do we think it was? It's ridiculous. I think it's redemption for sure. And I think there's uh, there's an interview in particular and I can't remember his exact words, but it, he kind of talks about how much he loves his mother and how he not only his mother, but the women in his life and, and how they raised him and saw just mis like you said, mistreatment of women in that era and kind of wanted to create this like you know, perfect hero, and or I should say non-perfect, because none of them are, you know, it's very believable in a lot of ways, even as crazy as Kill Bill is, I mean, you're other than, you know, killing a bunch of 88, you know, the crazy 88, you know, obviously that's, you know, fantasy and everything, but the storyline in general, it feels, you know, very real. Uh, a lot of his, a lot of his movies feel like, well, that, maybe that, that could happen, you know, it could, you know, somewhat happen. I, I think he makes these very imperfect characters so you can relate to them and then just have them unleash, you know, all their <laughs> fury on whoever that, that person might be. And I think he recognized that growing up because you watch any of those ex exploit any exploitation film in the seventies, you know, obviously women are treated like shit. Black women even more so. And, you know, you can just keep going down along the way and just see how terrible these people were were treated. And I think honestly it was just a sense of redemption and just his his love for all the women in his life that he tr truly truly respects and i think he really wanted to respect that in his in his films you know he still tells similar stories but without having to go all out and you know show like that rape scene that could he could have easily shown or you know have beatrix with her tits out or something you know something ridiculous like you don't need to he knew that he don't need to do any of that stuff and still show that this character is a full-on badass and can still go up against these men or whoever and take care of them. And I think that's another thing that I really enjoy about Jackie Brown, too. She's so much the normal girl-next-door kind of person. You know, she could be your neighbor or whatever, and she's doing all this crazy-ass shit, and she gets her revenge. And, you know, kind of... It's very reminiscent of, of both Coffee and Foxy. It's It's just a more tamed down version. And I think he does a beautiful job of, of, of that for sure. I think he allows her to use her wits and not her tits. So in these exploitation films, a lot of it is uh, sex. Sex is what breaks down the man and that's how she gets in. I understand that. I mean, that 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 is not an un 
realistic thing because men we are you know we are very simple in that way it's so boobs and we can't fucking we can't tie our shoes anymore we lose all train of thought but he allowed jackie brown to be a character who when ordell shows up to kill her and she knows he's there to kill her she outfoxes him. She outfoxes him and puts a gun to his to his dick, <laughs> and and doesn't have to like try to woo him with sexually to then try to ensnare him and get him trapped. She's able to do it where she's out thinking him. She's playing chess against him as opposed to having to be you know the the, the age old. Oh, I've got to you know I'm going to use my sexual and my my goodies to befuddle him. Where I think he allowed her to use and most of his characters their intelligence their wits to outwit the men as opposed to always having to go all right i'm gonna flash my boobs that'll get them and now i'm gonna move on like even when we do have a little bit of that with um melanie and jackie brown you know she kind of tries to do it even to lewis's character he doesn't really fall for it towards the end either so I, i like that he he knows the tropes and he uses a lot of tropes in films but for these he just he doesn't he doesn't pull them in he doesn't wrap them around his arms around them and use them and like you said, I think it makes his movies and his characters just, just I don't know. They're just, they're just more, they're, they're deeper. They're, they're more ingrained in real life as opposed to always having to go down the road of, all right, I'm a woman. One thing I can do to ever befuddle a man is I have to be naked or have sex with him to, to overpower him. And I, I like the fact that in a lot of his films, he doesn't do that at all. Your thoughts, Elwood? I think it's certainly a, to do with the times when you look at these films being made. Obviously, exploitation cinema is, as per its title, it's about exploiting the elements that you have. So, in this, so things are just like nudity, sex, violence. These are things that are easy to put onto film. They don't require a big budget. You just need some willing participants. Um, so this is why they feature so heavily, especially in the cinema, and suddenly violence against women. It is very much of its era. Whereas when we get into, especially like into the nineties into the 2000s, it becomes a lot harder for us to, as a modern audience to stomach violence against women. And certainly things such as like rape, if you're going to use rape in your film, you better have a damn good reason that you're going to do it. You can't just like throw it in there because when you just throw it in there, it just sort of stands out as sort of fun. You have to be... It's got to have it be like a central point. It's got to have a reason, and that's why you have films, films such as like Irreversible, which has the rape as a central point, and everything which comes after it is related to that particular point. Whereas in, as I said, when we look at exploitation cinema, I mean, certainly, yes, Jackie uses her feminine charms to to get what she needs to do. And I think by the time we get into Jackie Brown, when Tarantino is writing that character, he always envisioned Pam Grier. And when he writes about Pam Grier, the Pam Grier he's writing about is the one that we see in Foxy Brown in Coffee, the one with the razor blades in her throw, the, the sawn of shotgun. So when we're picking up with Jackie Brown, it's the same way that when we see Eastwood in uh, Gran Torino, it's sort of like, that's just Daddy Harry, but, you know, he's now older. And he's now, like, confined to the push. But in our mind, we're watching a continuation of the Daddy Harry. And I think when he came to, like, doing Jackie Brown, he was just doing the continuation of, like, Coffee and Foxy Brown. It's sort of like, this is the same person, but, like, she's now older. So this is why she doesn't need to use a feminine chance. This is why she's able to outfox Adele and why she's so self-assured. She's so tough in handling her situation in the way that we obviously see her handling it in that film. And I think it's sort of carried across with Pam Grier because of these movies that she she made things such as this and things like the big bird cage, big dollhouse, these really sort of tough exploitation movies in the seventies that everything which followed, we still see that vision as Pam Grier. Mm-hmm. She can be like on the L words and stuff. And it's like, no, that's, that's still coffee. Don't mess <laughs> with her. 
she be like just playing like the bartender and stuff but as fans of her earlier film we still see her as being this the same way that we see like eastwood as being like the man with no name or daddy harry whichever you prefer to be it's sort of like yeah he's sort of like he's maybe an old man but we know he's got a dangerous side to him so when <laughs> he's he got says, get squint. off my lawn Yes, yeah, right. so like, when he says get off my lawn, we know that he <laughs> means to get off the, his lawn. Yes, he will shoot you. He, w- he won't even think about it. I what one of my notes was is when you look at Pam. Now it's interesting. These movies are now about fifty years old. They are twenty five to twenty four years old when she does Jackie Brown. So she goes from her early twenties to now her mid forties. And obviously, in twenty five years, she's lived more life, all that stuff. But her acting ability, what was most jarring for me, and I'll get through some other stuff before we get into the actual influences. What was most jarring is she's not a bad actress in these films. They are the times that they are. You know, as I look more back, you start to see okay, acting over time, I think, has gotten better for sure. Just it just has. Maybe just directing as we modernize, as things get better, as stories get better, some of the acting gets better. Some people really bring their game. So Pam is doing good in these films for what they are and what she's been given. But her performance in Jackie Brown really is heightened when you go back and watch these films to see where Pam started from and to where she got to. And now obviously she's 25 years again down the road. So it's probably she's in her seventies now, which is also crazy to think, but what an amazing job she did in Jackie Brown, because in this, she is playing two women who could literally be the same woman in Foxy and in coffee. And yet when she plays Jackie, She's brought her A-game. It is like a whole different woman. I don't know if it's because of Tarantino, because of age, but her acting ability is... I mean, it's up there with the greats. I don't know if you would agree, but I, if you could put it up against any one of... Pick any actress and her best performance, and you put her performance as Jackie Brown, and I feel it stands out with it. Because it is so believable, so feels lived in. It feels as if Pam is playing... Of herself live. Like it feels like just, it's just Pam Greer is Jackie Brown, and this is the life she's lived, and she, this is who she is. I mean, again, she's early 20s, so I don't expect her to act like she does in her in 40s, but the difference between her characters of Coffee and Fox Brown are acting then and what she becomes in Jackie Brown, which was then 25 years down the road, now 50. I think she's very authentic for sure. I mean, she's, she's stupid. For authentic to any character like when you're watching coffee and foxy you believe that she's in those situations she really draws you into those characters regardless if it like you said it was directing by tarantino later on for jackie brown or the age or whatever it was um i think she did the best that she could with what she had and it shows i mean when you you compare Jack Hill's films, which are fantastic, and there's no way do I like pinning one director against another in that in that sense. Jack Hill and Tarantino are two completely different directors, but you can come you can really tell the difference in how they directed their actors. And I, I think she did fantastic with what she with whatever that, that 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 Jack Hill gave her at the time. And I think I don't know if she's even credited as like part of like a writer or producer or anything. I I feel like she was. I can't remember, but I feel like maybe on Foxy. I don't know yeah. if she was on Coffee. I feel like maybe Foxy she was. I know when she when she first started doing Coffee with with Jack Hill, they talked a lot even before she was even officially cast as Coffee. They went back and forth with how the story was going to be and the things that she was going to do and how she was going to, you know, get her revenge and all these little certain little plot points and stuff. She worked with him to create the story and even more so in Foxy Brown, because obviously Coffee did so well that when they did Foxy, they were just, they really put their all into Foxy. But I, I think she doesn't get enough credit 
as a lot of the things that she's done, she really put her her toes into every <laughs> in every uh, aspect of of uh, of these films. Like I don't know what if she had any part in in Jackie Brown in the sense of any. Or maybe you know, or even wanting to to bother Tarantino about anything, or you know, because I I can imagine that can might might feel a little bit intimidating, especially after Pulp Fiction had come out and you're doing this next big film with this huge, who is now it's this huge director. I'd be pretty intimidated to be like, hey, maybe we should do this. <laughs> I don't know if she ever said anything or you know, but I, also, I mean, Tarantino was also a huge Pam Grier fan, still is. I think I saw some interview about him meeting her for the first time or her coming over to his place at some point in time and how he had to hide his, he, he wanted or he wanted to hide his uh, posters of, of coffee and Fox and Brown and who knows what else that he had because he didn't he felt embarrassed that you know she was coming and she was going to see like oh, what a fanboy he was <laughs> of her but um, I think authenticity is the is the big thing here I think she she really you believe that she's coffee you believe that she's Fox and you believe that she's Jackie it, it, there, there's no doubt about it you watch those films no matter how cheesy they might look or seem in the beginning or how maybe sophisticated they are later on when we get to Jackie Brown, you are drawn into whatever thing that she is doing. She really, you can completely believe any little thing that she says or, or does. And that I think that's what's special about Pam Greer in general is that she really puts her all. And it's funny because I don't think she originally had any formal uh, acting training or anything like that. I don't think she was, from what I remember, I don't think she was going to be an, an actress. I think this was just kind of like when she first started out, it was um, just kind of like this thing that she tried out and did really well for her. So, I mean, good on Jack Hill for noticing that, that talent for sure. Mr. Jones, anything? Yeah, I mean, certainly when it comes to Pam Grizz and sort of acting a bit, I mean, obviously this is early in her career. And with Coffee, she based the role on her mother. Uh, Foxy Brown's based on her aunt. And when certainly when we get into Jackie Brown, yeah, she's coming into it. She's obviously been a working actress all this time. So she's gaining experience constantly because unlike a lot of uh, people that Tarantino cast, her career never hit a slump. She was always like working in television and, and movies, even though they weren't often the biggest production, she was constantly working. And the fact that he's written this specifically with her in mind, I think really helps the role because it's sort of like you're writing someone's strengths. You know all the, what Pam Gray is capable of and you know what the sort of role that you want her to play. And I think it gave her a lot more sort of like freedom to sort of make adaptations because she'd obviously go in and say, no, I wouldn't have done it this way. I would do it this way. And certainly with the notes, he was like, like, giving her yourself like you're not like the coffee you're not like the this sort of character you know like we're now moving on and this is sort of like where you are just a few years down the line and stuff and i think he'd really sort of looked at where pam Greer was and sort of like well how can i write this character but where would she be and i think that's certainly what comes across in in jackie brown because she's a lot more restrained she's not like going for the kill that we obviously see in these two movies where she's just out there kicking ass she's using her <laughs> charm she's she's taking care of business um whereas everyone else is sort of like a, a, a real putz which is kind of like carried really across into tarantino's <laughs> own world just sort of like he doesn't write about like you know people who are like good at the jobs they're just they're just idiots i think is the best way of putting it, especially when you look at like <laughs> yep. reservoir dogs when you look at vincent um, and jules certainly in the case of vincent these are just idiots who just bumble their way through the jobs they just happen to also have that ruthless streak which means that uh they can do some horrible things as well so <laughs> it, it's so kind of so pam grizzard's that uh charisma 
uh, which I think really sort of carries uh, carries over like any sort of where she may have any sort of weakness in her acting ability. I think the raw charisma and presence of Pangria, like it's the sort of like power empowerment that you see a lot of like artists now, people like Beyonce and that they're trying to capture that 70s flow. And it's all like, no, she's very much a woman of her era, but at the same time, she's got this sort of real sort of strength about her. And when she's like doing the jive talking, when she's like tearing men a new strip, like in Foxy Brown, where um, her and the, the other model are just there like belittling the guy who's hired them as prostitutes and they're sort of like <laughs> making fun of his penis and stuff and you see like people like as i said like i'm gonna keep picking up beyonce because she's <laughs> the most obvious example i can think of and she when she tried to do it in uh the third austin powers movie it's like no this is just like this feels like an snl yep. caricature it doesn't you're saying the words but i'm not believing it it's sort of like when pam Greer calls you like a jive turkey you like you believe that that she's going to do you some harm when she's belittling you and the fact is pangra i think there's some part of us that also like being belittled by pangra so <laughs> well I also think that Pam Greer and nothing against Beyonce, because I don't want people to start fucking coming after me, but Beyonce, I don't feel has, Pam Greer feels more like she's lived the role she's playing, where it's hard to see Beyonce as that when we know who Beyonce is, where Beyonce is this world galactic star, and it's hard to see Beyonce as someone who would be involved with someone and call him a jive turkey. <laughs> it just doesn't, it doesn't yeah, seem she... like the world that Beyonce travels in, and that's nothing against Beyonce, but it just doesn't feel as real as when we have Pam Greer doing it. She lacks a struggle. Which I think you need to yes, sort of draw on if you point, play yeah. this sort of character. Now, right before we get into the influences, there's just a few things I had notes, some fun points that I just wanted to bring up. Because there are some funny shit that happens in this film, whether it was meant to or not. The date that she goes on with the the senator from California or wherever, where it's basically like a tamed down strip club. Like nothing says a romantic evening, like taking your girlfriend out to see other women's titties. <laughs> like that's a good move, I'm sure. Sure, Sin Electric is like, I hope a man will take me out to a strip club for a date. That is just such a fucking shit move. Uh, I just loved it, though. While they're there, I don't know what it is. Can anyone pull off creepy and an eye patch like white people? Because, like, except for maybe, except for maybe our man Kurt Russell as Snake Plissken. But this dude with the eye patch, it just is creepy as shit. I love, like, like at the old days, like, this, there's always those, they have to hit you over the head with who the bad guy is. So, how do we know who the guy who's dangerous is at the, at this romantic strip bar? It's the guy, white guy with the eye patch, who then goes, kills a girl because she took a picture of him. Like, what the? Whatever. Anyways, but then when she takes her boyfriend home after he's got her all riled up from some talk, and they're talking, I forget what it was, they're talking about like if he would he would leave her or something like that. And he's, my favorite line is he says, uh, them lusty young bitches. Just what? It's just like, some of the stuff just made me laugh out loud. Now, King George, who we haven't even gotten into, ends up becoming her pimp because basically Pam Grier's character, as I've said, has to go into sex trade in order to bring down this this drug cartel. He has some amazing pimp outfits. Some amazing pimp outfits. He's a shit pimp, which is why I'm part of Jack Hill's writing. He doesn't know the world. As Tarantino said in his story, there's never been a white pimp in the history of the world. So to have one or to have someone write about one is uh, ridiculous. And I think he brought this movie up because of it. He's not a real good pimp. He lets his ladies, if you know anything about pimps, get way out of line. But it does lead to a fun fight where it's not a girl fight unless some titties pop out because you got to have a girl fight and titties pop out. But right before we get into it, Pam Greer's Jamaican accent is fucking 
awful. <laughs> why did we even try? And I love Pam Grier. I felt bad for her. I'm like, why Why are you making her Jamaican? I think she'd probably pull off a southern one better. The Jamaican accent is terrible. It only comes, I don't think she even hits one word that sounds Jamaican. It's awful. Absolutely terrible. The only thing worse than this, and I'm not trying to take a shit on Jack Hill. He got movies made. Good for him. But this is how I knew he was white after seeing that he was white before the movie started is he has no idea how the drug market works. The amount of drugs that the, that the pimp has, that King George has, that he's like hiding. Who's he selling this to? Who is buying this small a quantity of drugs? Like it is like in a small briefcase, in a small vial that looks like someone's dietary supplement. I was just sitting there going, okay, I know this is the same. I was trying to pick it apart, but I'm going, I don't think Jack Hill has any fucking clue how the drug trade works and how much people actually have to have in order to be an actual drug pusher and sell to clients. However, before I let you speak and tell me your feelings, I did write this down. And here's, I'm going to read it exactly. Did this dude write a lynching into this film? When poor King George is, at first I thought he was going to be lynched, but he kind of was and dragged behind the car with an amazing dummy that just flops around <laughs> like a really bad fishing lure. I just was like, oh no. Like I instantly, I was like, did the first, I was just typing like, did this dude really write a lynching into this film? Thankfully, it doesn't technically turn into that. But I was like, woof, like, ah, I don't know. I mean, that's really right on the fucking nose. So your thoughts on some of the fun stuff that happens in this bizarre, lovely Black Flotation film starring the amazing Pam Greer. I mean, I would use the, the term fun really loosely. <laughs> or or you, you lusty young bitches. They don't have this. If you go into the film, it's a fun film. If like you're not, you know, if you don't take oh, yeah. it too seriously, you know what I mean? It's one of those like you go, okay, I'm going to have fun. Because if you go into this thinking you're going to watch some of the greatest filmmaking ever, you're going to be disappointed. But if you go into it going, the, the key term is black exploitation. Like anything that's exploitation film, you should go in knowing, okay, we're going to have some wild, interesting things happen that really don't happen in the real world, but you're going to have fun watching them pull them off like if you watch any kind of kung fu movies from the 80s and 70s similar kind of thing ridiculous stuff's going to happen but you're going to enjoy watching because it's going to be fun well it was, it was definitely like a um putting a, a light to all the things that were currently happening around that time um true so that scene in particular i know that pam had talked with jack hill about making sure that these things were kind of highlighted um, in a way. And, and she said in an interview that she, I guess they had looked into a bunch of like police files about specifically lynchings and how coffee was very toned down in comparison to the police files that they had gone over mm. in regards to lot of lynchings that had happened but that they wanted she specifically said that she wanted it to be as gr gross and grotesque as possible to reflect the problems that were that were happening with the police and the lynchings and the um just black people in general and how they were being treated around that time as well as highlighting you know the whole mm -hmm. drug problem and just all all the terrible things that were going around around that time they specifically wanted to include those things because of because they were going on and and because they kind of wanted to highlight that and be like hey like i know we're kind of this stuff is still going on but kind of maybe it's being swept under the rug in a way and people aren't talking about it as much but this is a way how we can make people talk about it again and see that there is a, a real problem so i think it it was 
it was a lynching and and it was what it was definitely to bring more of a light into into all the problems that were going on maybe in 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 that which i think i think they were they filmed that in la the whole everything so yeah i think a, a lot of that stuff was uh was looked into in actual police files and and news reports and stuff like that so 100%. Do we think he may have dropped the ball because it's the gang members who lynch him, which I felt took a lot of the power away? Or do we feel that maybe he, uh, given the times, worried to make it the police and try to make a statement out of it? Because King George is dragged behind the car by, I forget the other guy's name, I apologize, who the the other kingpin was, the white guy. But he was dragged behind the car by them because they thought that Jackie had gone there to kill him. And, or Jackie, Jesus Christ, Pam Graves' character, sorry, Coffee gone there to kill him. And they're the ones who are doing the lynching, the dragging behind. Do you feel like it loses a bit of its power because it ends up becoming more of a, you know, just the way that even Sid Haig is playing the character who's doing it, it... I don't want to say it's comical, but it's it's more of like this, like you know, mustache twirling kind of villain, and doesn't have the power of like, oh shit, these cops are, you know, dirty cops or whatever are now dragging him behind. Like I think would have happened in a Tarantino version of this film had it been him, the director, not a Jack Hill. Their boss is is a is a white guy, right? Like isn't isn't that he is? But I'm saying like it was more of a drug. It was more of like they felt that King George had sent because they didn't know that. Pam, or Pam, Jesus Christ, keep, yeah, that Pam's character, Coffee, was on her own terms. They thought she was a Jamaican whore that he sent for him to have fun with, and she was there to try to kill him, and it was because of King George. And they don't even ask him that question. That's the other thing. They don't even ask King George if he even did that. They just assume, and they go, because she said it happened, and they drag him. So I understand what you're saying, what they talked about, but I feel like that maybe he dropped the ball in bringing that plight to light, because it ends up being villains attacking each other. So we even if the guy's white or green, whatever, like it's it's such a drug deal kind of thing gone bad. So, you know, I, I didn't really see it as like, you know, white versus black kind of thing. I saw it as, uh oh, King George fucked up. This guy's putting him in check because, you know, he they broke this truth, tried to kill him. It had more of a like anything that happens in like Reservoir Dogs when the bad guys kill each shoot each other, you you feel something for him, but you don't have that same like like if a cop just suddenly, you know, shoots someone in the face and that kind of, you know, out of the blue stuff that can happen in some of the films that we now have these days. It felt more just really a way to sort of emphasize this or like, you know, these are just really bad people. At the same time, Coffee sees one woman. She's going up against a whole drugs trade organization. She has to play the advantage where she can. It's a very Bond-esque move. You're seeing, oh, especially yeah. in like a lot of the Connery ones, it's sort of like, he'll do something to like set some guy up and then he'll get bumped off by someone else in his organization. So it felt very much just like, just for them to say like, you know, these are just bad guys. He's uh, willing to, to do this in broad daylight, more or less, and he's on a, the streets of some suburb somewhere, you get to see a local drug dealer being... Uh, Toe behind someone's car. And it also has that sort of very visual sort of selling point because if you look at the trailer, that's the shot that's in the trailer. And the whole thing about exploitation cinema is you're creating scenes that are going to get people to go and buy a ticket to the movie. So you need something very visual and having some guy toe behind a car is so like, well, I've not seen that before. I'm going to go and see that movie and see what that's about. And then obviously we've got like, oh, and it's, you see, come see the lovely Pam Grier as well. It's like, well, I've 
gonna go and see that for that reason as well so we're stacking reasons yeah. for people to go and see this this film and this is what a lot of these films are about and also when you were like talking about like the amount of drugs that he has on him this is sort of very sort of typical of the 70s because it's not until we get into the 80s and scarface and the colombians and that sort of trade that we're seeing like mountains of cocaine it's all about <laughs> the more and it's about excess that we see like more in the 80s it was a lot more sort of subtle people like drug like briefcases of drugs in like the 70s and uh, because at this point the trade hadn't really sort of come across it's really once we get into the 80s and we start seeing like the coke trade that we see like the huge excess the private submarines the <laughs> warehouses <laughs> of like blocks of drugs you don't obviously see it a lot in the 70s because this is like still very sort of low level guys with sort of very big level plans yeah. so all about using like the drug trade as like the stepping stone to get into the positions of power they want to be like the senator they want to be like the man and control things um it's get with them lusty the drug trade is, <laughs> them young lusty bitches <laughs> the drug trade is just there to fund the next move and it's funny you mentioned about the club that they they go to first off the the eye patch and glasses combo is a timeless look and we need to really bring that back i'm thinking about it <laughs> there's also that season this three week. that's what you need is just eye patches for no reason it just whenever i see one of these bizarre clubs it always seems to be around this era because when you look at department sisters they've got like i think it's the jungle room which is like this really stereotypical african themed room and you've got guys like black waiters dressed up as like zulu warriors and stuff and you see things such as like thank god it's friday and you have like the arctic room so you they had some very weird ideas of what Married for club motif, and I think the fact <laughs> that the pancreatic coffee is seen as being, as I said, she's just a a, a lowly woman. She's, I think, is she a prostitute? And he sees her as it doesn't really matter if he's taking the strip club. She's just there for his entertainment. It, he's yeah. not there to impress her. That's true. You know, if he went to impress her, he'd take her to a nice restaurant. But he's not <laughs> there to impress her. He's just, you know, the hot broad in his arm. He's there to look, make him look good, provide his entertainment. So that's why he goes to the strip club. I would love to read the Yelp reviews of that of that restaurant that's in this film. I'd love to see what those Yelp reviews would be if they were on today. And now it's time to present the evidence. So this is the point of the first film where we now look at the influences. Now, I will tell you the ones that I saw, and if I miss any, please jump in at the end and tell me yours. But the first one... Number one. This film, along with some of the other films of Pam's, is the main reason he speaks about Pam and Reservoir Dogs and that we eventually get her cast five years later in Jackie Brown. The second, Aragon and the Escape by Roy Ayers was used in Jackie Brown along with other songs from this film. Roy Ayers had a great revival of his career money-wise due to the amount of money he made from Tarantino paying him to use a majority of the soundtrack from Coffee in Jackie Brown. Number three. Mr. Tarantino was also influenced heavily by the 70s R&B in films like this especially in this film and in our next film, that we definitely hear in his early films, especially from Reservoir Dogs all the way up to Jackie Brown. And then he starts to move into, which also kind of starts in Jackie Brown, where he starts to pull pieces from other people's soundtrack and bring them into his own movies. But the soundtracks of these exploitation films, the 70s soul and R&B songs are in them, are heavily influenced and brought into his films, especially his first three for sure. Number four. Coffee is a nurse character who, along with QT's mom, I believe was the archetype for Bonnie, Jimmy's wife, that we only see briefly in Pulp Fiction, who was also supposed to have a role in Reservoir Dogs earlier. But to hear more about that, listen to my Reservoir Dogs podcast from last season. Number five. 
And lastly, one of my favorite moments, and as soon as I saw it, I said, oh, I'm going to get medieval on your ass. Coffee shoots her man's dick off with a shotgun, just like Mr. Marcellus Wallace does to poor Zed, well, not poor Zed, to Zed in Pulp before Zed becomes dead. Those are the ones that I saw from just Coffee. I have, we'll get into Foxy in a moment. Did either of you see anything in the film that Tarantino either used in Jackie or throughout his universe? Yeah. Number six. The attempt at character design, when Tarantino is design, uh, designing female characters, they've all got this sort of like tough edge to them. And he's drawing inspiration, not only for many from like exploitation cinema in like how these characters sort of like look and carry themselves. And also drawing like the kick-ass element from like Hong Kong cinema. So those are always the two sort of main areas he draws or he designs like female characters. We see in like Death Proof, like these are a group of sassy women and they as i said that's obviously him drawing from more from his black exploitation side then we look at the bride she's very influenced by hong kong cinema the fact that the weapon of choice is the samurai sword it's the honorable weapon we see it again in pulp fiction the fact that butch uses the samurai sword the honorable weapon but i think as i said it coffee's the influence can be felt in like how he designs tough female characters how he like designs like um sort of like sassy women and i think jungle julia is his attempt to like really try and put a coffee-esque character in there the way that she carries herself but unfortunately because of her being a modern actress she doesn't have the sort of like grime i mean she's Sydney Poitier's daughter so it's the same problem as like beyonce she's lived too privileged a life to have the grind that we need <laughs> for her to play the sort of sass that i want I love her though. I really do. She's phenomenal. Anyways, that's that's a podcast. We already <laughs> talked about them. We already did that already. Miss Electric, anything did you saw? Number seven. All those clubs look a lot like uh, the Cockatoo Inn. I mean, they have that same vibe. I, I don't know if he is trying yeah. to draw that and why he cho- chose the Cockatoo. And I think he did might have used it for Pulp Fiction as well. I'm not 100% sure, but I know for sure he obviously uses it in Jackie Brown. They look very much alike. The, yes. The, the the colors uh, everything about it feels very cockatoo in number eight and then there's one shot in particular that i i had just noticed um on my last viewing was there's a scene in jackie brown where i want to say it's the trial run sequence okay and they do a slow uh pan into the bag showing that it's like you know left like left there and then that's mm-hmm. when or whatever where she's supposed to they do something kind of similar in coffee where she is distracting who is it king george and then they do a, a slow uh pan into the fireplace to kind mm-hmm. of like 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 those felt very alike those are the things that kind of stood out to me but for sure the 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 bar i mean 100 i was like is this the cockatoo like, <laughs> sure i'm like i mean it is la so i mean is it or is it not or like i mean they they look really 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 similar in terms of just the whole vibe that they give off yeah you're, you're absolutely correct I, I mean not to just put it on on the comparing jackie brown and or just only jackie brown but um obviously the music helps a lot like you said um in using a lot of those songs and everything i totally lost my train of thought but yeah <laughs> I, totally <laughs> I was thinking of the of the cockatoo and i was like man still existed. <laughs> i want to go there's so I bad know. 
And now it's time to read the verdict. Now, as you're well-versed in this, Mr. Elwood, I always ask after we review each film, do you believe that Mr. Tarantino was inspired by this film, or did he blatantly rip it off? Miss Electric, I'll let you answer first. Just to quote Tarantino, he completely ripped it off. (laughs) 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 I mean, the man has said multiple times that he rips everything off. I mean, those are his own words, you know? So, I mean... More power to him. I mean, he, like like they say in Jackie Ryan, you seem to be getting away with it, so more power to you. That's, I mean, but he does it in a respectful way, and in no way does he, do I feel that he is just uh, taking advantage or exploiting these other films. I think he, I mean, we all know how much this man loves cinema and how much he respects cinema. Even the crappiest movies out there, these like low budget things that he still will find something that's like he is so inspired by. And he pays homage to them. He just, he really does. He totally takes the things that he loves the most and he tries to use them. And I think that's pretty much what any artist does. I mean, you can't create art without kind of looking back at other things and but I think he does it beautifully. So in his words, he's ripping it off. I wouldn't use those <laughs> terms. I think he's saying it just to be funny. But, but yeah, I think he's doing it in a, in a tasteful way. And I, not in any way do I feel like it's something negative. I think he does it respectfully. Mr. Jones. Yeah, I definitely think he's drawing, paying a huge homage uh, here with this film. I mean, it's, he's taking Pam Greer's iconic characters and then transferring them into the Milano world. I mean, you look at you look at Jackie Brown and she, you can't help but think of like Coffee and Foxy Brown. You can't help but think of these, especially these black exploitation era ones. There is a shameless ripoff of this uh, film. If you watch the Shaw Brothers movie, it's Sexy Killer. It's just Coffee, just obviously set in Hong Kong. <laughs> so, I mean, he has that going from the fact he's sort of like, oh, I didn't completely rip it off, even though he did obviously admit, as uh, Sim pointed out, that he is basically ripping it off. But I think he does it in a more subtle way than uh, the Shaw Brothers did when they did The Sexy Killer, which was just best said, let's just remake it, but in Hong Kong. Also, you have to remember that it's hard for him to completely rip it off since the story he's doing is based on someone else's novel and he just adds her in. In the case of Coffee. We find the defendant not guilty of the crime of being a talentless hack who rips other people's movies off. There we go on our first film. We're now jumping to Foxy Brown. It's time to call our second witness. Our second witness is the 1974 American black exploitation film Foxy Brown, written and directed by Jack Hill. A voluptuous black vigilante takes a job as a high-class prostitute to get revenge on the mobsters who murder her boyfriend. Starring Pam Greer, Peter Brown, Terry Carter, Catherine Loder, and Harry Holcomb. Made on a budget of $500,000 and grossing $2.46 million at the box office. With a 6.5 IMDb rating and a 62 critics and 66 audience score on Rotten Tomatoes. Now taking the witness stand, Foxy Brown. I put down my first notes is Jack is a huge fan of Pam's assets as he makes sure they are front and center early on in almost every film he does with her. And I get it. It's part of the exploitation part. It's weird because I'm seeing these two films 
post Jackie Brown. How I'm phrasing this is probably bad, but it's going to sound weird. So I understand that right before I even Real say Real careful now. <laughs> it's like seeing your mom naked. Like it's Jackie Brown. Like it's like, you know what I mean? Like it's Pam Greer, but to me it's Jackie. And now you're like showing me pictures of her. It's almost like, like maybe my mom did something lurid that I don't know about. And now you're showing me the lurid stuff. And I'm almost like, how dare you besmirch the good image of Pam Greer, Jackie Brown. And now you're showing me her tatas. And now I'm like, I'm confused. You're confuddling me because while they are nice to look at, but this is this this is Jackie. Like, how dare you dig up the dirt on her, you sons of bitches? And here he is showing her stuff, and I'm like, but that, like my whole time, I'm like, but that's Jackie Brown. Like, how dare you? Like, she's gonna put a gun against your dick and shoot you. So I know there's exploitation films, and I've seen many breasts in many films. I guess if I had seen these films before Jackie Brown, it wouldn't be as big a like not a shock, but almost kind of like I don't know. It's like seeing someone you. You have a different reverence for it, and now you've seen... It'd be like seeing your grandma naked. You'd be like, why? Grandma was a stripper? You know, like, you don't want to see that stuff. He's just like, oh, no. And we're going backwards in time now. And obviously she's younger, but you're like, you're besmirching this woman that, I have, that I'm idolizing because of Tarantino. And here she is, nude and being treated poorly. And you're just like, you, you almost, I almost want to yell at the screen, bitch, you're Jackie Brown. Fuck these motherfuckers. Don't you let them treat you like this. So how did you feel? This is good. I can't wait to hear both answers because I've got one female, one male. How did you feel about seeing Pam's assets more than once throughout these films? What a, what a hard day's work it was having to watch these movies yes it's (laughs) getting to see uh see pam grid nude in two movies that was that was a real hardship of a week that one was no i mean yes it's it's does I don't have the connection with like the Pam Grier and Jackie Brown to the Pam Grier ST in these movies. It's almost like the, the it's like I'm watching Pam Grier of this era. I'm like watching her in this. I'm not drawing like going oh this is the Pam Grier I know of this era. I'm just seeing her of, of this era the same way that like when you watch Beyond Thunderdome and you see Tina Turner as uh, Antimity, you're like oh wow <laughs> Tina Turner's looking pretty <laughs> damn fine there. You don't think wow Tina Turner's actually someone's grandmother. You just view it like of that particular era. I think the fact when it comes obviously the nudity in the scene is very much she's in control it's not that so like she's been having clothes torn off and she's being exposed it's sort of like no i'm she's doing that sort of like thing that you see with like female russian spies it's sort of like i have these assets i can use this to open doors for me and she basically does it so like i'm an attractive woman men are weak-willed and I can exploit them and get the end because obviously she doesn't have the the firepower. She can't go the direct approach. She has to go the sneaky route. She has to work away in the organization. And what better way to work away in an organization than using your assets? So it didn't feel exploitative in a way. And obviously, it didn't. It, she's an attractive, attractive girl. I mean, it's hard to complain about the fact she's showing herself in this movie. I don't know. Maybe I'm just a, a scumbag who's watched too many exploitation movies, so it no longer affects me. But <laughs> since now I'm gonna like, since now I'm gonna come hunting for me with a I shotgun. Know. I don't know. <laughs> However, Sin was the first on, I think, our episode to say titties. So we least she she opened the gate for us. I'm just saying she she opened the door. Sin, why am I saying this? Sin's like against it. Sin could be like pro boobs as well. There's nothing to say. That I, like I said, I have no problem with boobs at all. But it's just you know, it's like it I, because we've seen her before. Like Pam Greer is built up for as a Tarantino fan from talking about her Reservoir Dogs. She's in Jackie Brown. I don't watch these movies, so I do this thing. And I jump into them, and now I'm like, God damn it. 
Was this your first time watching these films? Obviously, hearing about them for a very long time. It, it's now this, the age of streaming, which makes it easier to find them. When we no longer have the ability to get them, you know, on uh, rent them on VHS and stuff like that, it's hard. Like even eighties, nineties, even after Tarantino brought these movies back out, finding black exploitation films outside of like a major city like L.A., New York, very hard to do because they're all on VHS at the time. And then it takes, I think, Tarantino some time to finally giving his cachet to it that they finally come on, you know, DVD and stuff. But even that, they're not widely spread out that you know you're not going to Best Buy or whatever electronics store at the time when they're out then you're finding these films so to find them you have to know some people and then like they don't really go on to Netflix so I finally was able to find them on Amazon so now that the world is putting more films on like just doing the Asian cinema stuff that is hard to find hard to find Asian cinema here in America to stream anyway you have to literally go on some sites that people may have told me about to help me find some of these films you know like so getting your hands on some of this stuff is still kind of very hard so seeing them without having already seen them from someone who owned them back in the day was hard. So even though I knew the Foxy Brown reference and the coffee reference, finding them was the real trick until now in the last couple of years when now you can start to find it through like the 3,000 streaming services that we have, if that answers your question. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Kind of. <laughs> I was just, it's easier to find porn than it is to find black exploitation films yeah, nowadays. Well, but was this your first time watching them, like for this podcast? Like this yes. is your first time. Wow. Yes. Okay. So some of what I wanted to do for this season was to to actually search out these films finally that I had probably been wanting to watch, but just haven't had the time. You know, I just didn't really find myself sitting down going, okay, I'm going to watch it. So now it's like, ooh, I'm going to pick these films that I want to see that I haven't seen. And I was very excited about this episode knowing that I was going to finally see the two films that's all I hear about. And you know, look, at, I'll be like him. And we got to see titties. <laughs> <laughs> so Elwood was like, yes, I'm in. That's why he was so quick to say, I'll be in the Jackie Brown one. I didn't realize it. I didn't realize it. Yeah. He's like, I'm in, I'm in. I'm first one in. <laughs> so, so this experience was like that uh, screen cap of... Uh, Hugh Jackman in the fountain or just like that that or the white light coming on you it's sort of like the Pam Greer and Boots uh, reveal it's sort of like oh my it's looking into the sun but the funny thing about what we're talking about is all these other films that Tarantino watches it's nothing but women and in his films we've got more dick shots than we've had actually women <laughs> naked ever we've not there's not been a single boob shot and I've seen Bruce's willy so I was like oh alright that's that's the man I'm watching so <laughs> we had another guy walking in Hateful Eight walking through the snow, dick all out. It's just nothing but dick out in Tarantino world. There are no titties. It's just dick out central. Yeah, we've seen a swing really where it's like when you went look at the 80s cinema and there was a lot of female nudity. And now as we like go into the 90s, the female actresses are not wanting to do nudity unless they're in the Euro Europe, which is why Eli Roth went to like Hamburg to shoot Hostel because European actresses are less concerns about nudity as he puts it but now because of things such as like Spartacus being on stars we're now realize that you can look at a penis and it's not the sun you won't go blind so now we're like see more penises than we it see it won't turn you gay because, yeah it's all like we're now like oh it's just a penis before it used to be like this this uh shocking thing to see another man's penis but now we're sort of like over it uh so and men apparently have got less concerns about exposing themselves on film it's male privilege isn't it really i guess well Oh, the dick pic has become the new male business card. Like people, get, guy will send dick pic without, without, even, without even asking. It's like, hey, how you doing? Here's my dick. It's like, oh, okay, I guess you know. It's like, wow. I, I remember that my bizarre. next pitch meeting, just like flopping out the desk and go. It's like, here we are. Do you ever have a business card? I do. Hold on one second. Uh, uh, here we go. Here we go. So sorry, Sin. That we once again two fucking childish men have gone off the rails because sure we're little kids. <laughs> so. 
<laughs> you're, you're feeling on all of the stuff we've just discussed. Um, I don't. I I can't really remember. I know obviously I watched Jackie before I watched Coffee and Foxy. Um, I don't really remember too much of my reaction of seeing those films. I think I'm sure that I had some kind of like the same thing, like because you respect Pam Greer in Jackie Brown so much and then seeing these films where she's being exploited, that it's kind of a shock and seeing her nude is kind of a shock, at least at first. <laughs> and then you're just kind of like, all right, there they are again. <laughs> <laughs> By the end of Foxy Brown, it's like, yeah. I'm surprised that the whole credit sequence is just her boobs going across. But I, I mean, I the the good thing is that so when I one of my last the last times that I had watched it, both films um, was at the Beverly. So I got, luckily enough, I saw them on film and they were back to back. And the last showing was Jackie Brown. So I got to watch them, these three together. But I watched it with my brother who had never seen Coffee or Foxy Brown. And I had warned him, too. I was like, I'm just going to let you know because I don't know if this will be like a shock to you or whatever. And sometimes, you know, when you're with your younger siblings or siblings in general, some people might feel uncomfortable. And I just wanted him to be aware, like, they're going to be nude. There's there's some sex scene. There's some violence and this and that. Just just letting you know. If you're not ready to see that, then don't come <laughs> watch these movies with me. And it's like, oh, I want to watch them. But he did have that reaction of, like, it was kind of like a, a shock factor to you know see her nude and be exploited that way when you respect her so much in jackie and jackie brown and you you see what not to say that she's not she's any less of a badass in coffee or foxy but she really you see her wit more than her tit <laughs> jackie brown that's gonna be a t-shirt it's gotta be gotta be gotta be Should have been a tagline for jackie brown. yeah jackie brown all wit, wit no tit <laughs> That's fucking awesome. <laughs> I'm going to pitch it. If I ever get to meet Tarantino, I'm going to pitch it to him. Look, on your 50th release, can oh, we leave? Uh, what are we God. thinking? <laughs> All wet, no tit. There you go. <laughs> I mean, you mentioned so you'd say, like, you saw it as, like, Pam being exploited. But at the same time, I don't know if, like, actually this era viewed, like, doing nude scenes as being exploited as such. Because, like, I can't remember her name now. The girl who does the uh, nude scene in Halloween, I remember, like, speaking to, speak to her and she was like, sort of, like, says that when she sees that scene, it's sort of like, there's my boobs. Yeah. And it's sort of, like she's just really proud of this scene and she didn't see it. It's like exploitive. It's like I think it's the order in which I saw her. You know, I think it's the order. It's if I'd seen Coffee Fox Brown first, wouldn't be as like she's like Sin saying. It was because the aura of Pam Greer is so built up by Tarantino about who she is. I mean, like I said, you know, the first time we ever hear her name, it's in Reservoir Dogs. And then all of a sudden, like five years later, she's in this film. You find out he's written it for her. And you're just like, <gasps> you know, you hear all the stuff about her and then she, I mean, then she starts to come out in more movies right after that. Like, she's in Original Gangster. She's in Hard Candy. She's in a bunch of stuff in the 90s. And so you see more of her, and she's clothed. So, you know, like I, I'm a child of the 80s. I mean, my God, boobs were in every film in the 80s. I mean, literally, I mean, die hard they throw in a tit shot at the beginning of the movie. Like, she's like, everything has boobs in, in the 80s. So it's not a shock. But it's kind of shocking when you're not the first thing you see. Like, like my introduction to Pam Greer is Jackie Brown. Having heard of her, like her, the mythology of Pam Greer, and then you go back and see it. Well, I wasn't, I wasn't disappointed. I just was, it was just, it was weird to look at her because you're kind of like, damn it, boobs. Fuck. But you know what I mean? Like, like it's like, but that's the thing. Like in your male mind, you're like boobs, but you're also kind of like, but you're like, but I know these boobs. You know, what I mean? it's, just, it's like that weird, like you know, I'd be like going to a strip club and you're like, your cousins up there, and you're like, 
wait, what? <laughs> it's that weird, like, wait a minute. It, it, your mind is played with because you're like, you're so, you know, because Jackie's also a more mature woman at this point, or Pam as Jackie Brown. And not that that's a bad thing, but now you're going back and now you're looking at her when she's young. It's almost like, you, like you're hearing a dirty secret about her. Someone's like, hey, you want to see some pictures? And you're like, look at your mom, look what your grandma used to do. And you're like, what the fuck? So, like, I don't have a problem with booze. It was just like the order in which I got to meet and know of Pam Greer is a little different than probably everyone else, including Tarantino. Up to the point, which I also then take my hat off to him for not exploiting her, for doing wit and no tit for her. Because I <laughs> that's but that's what I love about Jackie Brown, and especially watching these, which strengthened my love for the film. Anybody who thinks he's a male chauvinist pig, I say watch Coffee and watch Foxy Brown. Then sit down and watch Jackie Brown, and you tell me the difference between how Pam Greer was directed and treated 25 years earlier, and how Tarantino treats her and all the other females he has in his films. You know, as such. And then someone will probably bring up Don Rago, and then I can have a big discussion about <laughs> how she's a horrible person and she just gets what she gets because all the horrible people in that movie get what they get. So I do have to say, when I watched them in theaters and getting that whole experience, and even my brother felt the same exact way, it was in order Coffee Brown, Foxy, and then Jackie. So once Foxy Brown ended and the credits for Jackie Brown started, we both started crying because it was so, it felt so emotional to see her kind of being exploited in that sense in those films and see her being treated so badly, uh, even though she gets her, you know, redemption, her offense, yeah. of course, but all the things that she had to go through. And then you see her, and it's not even so much the premise of these films. It's also knowing that it was a tough time in the 70s as well to make those type of movies and the things, if you go into Pam Greer's history and the things that she had to go through, it's very um, emotional to watch Jackie after those two and see like while she's finally getting, you know, the film that she was made to do, like, thank goodness Tarantino put her, you know, and she wasn't even just a side character. Like she was front and center. This movie is about her. It was awesome. I mean, and I think that's why we had both gotten super emotional. You see her being thrown through the dirt and then, you know, becoming this awesome fucking character (laughs) and actor. Who should have won an Academy Award, but we'll get out. We won't bring that up too much (laughs) because it's one of the biggest slights ever. Now, in these films, two two things happen. Foxy Brown is the name of a rapper. She named herself after this film, and there is a song by her playing in the record store when our boy Max goes in to buy the Delphonics because he has fallen for Jackie. And her buddy Sid Haig was in both of these films playing two completely different characters, cameoed as the judge at her bail hearing, which she did not know about until she came on set and they started to shoot that film that she had no idea he was going to be in there. So two really cool things. But as we're talking a little bit about nudity now, the whole premise of this movie is also crazy. But Jackie Brown's boyfriend who went undercover gets a face change like Michael Jackson and the freaking uh, Kardashians do. And now he's a different guy. But she's gonna get she's getting him a little excited because she now sees his face and he's getting excited about that he looks handsome or whatever. And he starts to get a little aroused. That love that short black nurse comes in and she's got to bathe him and she, and she can tell he's gonna love. And she slaps his dick. I laughed so hard. That was one of the I haven't seen something that funny in a long time. And I loved that sassy black lady 
be in that film. And just, she's in it briefly, but she walks in. And what a scene, Steve. She's just, like, I wasn't prepared for it. All of a sudden, she slaps his dick. I was like, that was just, I was like, that was amazing. Also, before I turn it back over to you, this, I know it's the 70s. So I, again, I gauge all this. It's the 70s. But for a man who just had facial surgery to change his looks, there's not a single scar. This is the 70s. Not a single scar on his face. Face, not a stitch, nothing. It's like, <laughs> again, there's a lot of things I think Jack Hill doesn't know a lot about. Like, I'm expecting, like, even, like, you know, as he's taking out the bandage, his eyes will have, you know, black and blue probably, or at least look dark because they probably broke his nose to reset it, to change it and all this stuff. Nothing. Nothing. No anything. Your feelings on the opening of this film, the dick slap, and the no face scars. The fact that you're so concerned about his surgery. I'm the, trying the, to keep the lack this of polite. I mean, as I said, this is the 70s. We didn't care about, like, realism. I know. In this same era, Sean Connery is being made Japanese in You Only Lived Twice. So realism and surgery is not going hand in hand. He also plays in the 80s a guy called The Spaniard, and he speaks with a Scottish accent. So, yeah, you know. So, um, and I can't help but feel that with the the sassy uh, nurse that uh, that was the inspiration for Vivica Fox's uh, character in Kill Bill Volume 1, because when her daughter comes in, it's sort of like, that dog came in here and made a damn fool of himself. (laughs) Couldn't help but feel that was a little nod uh, to the nurse. And she's really the embodiment of, like, that sort of sassiness that you want. And I love the, as I said, I just love the fact she goes and smacks his dick. Because you can tell that she's someone who is like working long hours and stuff. And the last thing she needs is someone acting the damn fool in her (laughs) her ward. And I love that it's finally a man getting a little bit abused. Because normally in these films, the women are getting abused. But this was kind of refreshing that, hey, Put that away, all right? We don't have time for this shit. Put it away. She slaps that fucking thing. It's, fucking it's a very nasty. I mean, my mom's a, a nurse, and my aunt's a nurse, so my and uncle's a nurse. They're just slapping dicks so... every other day. They, they, just, they did not care. They're not phased by, like, can you see it and notice this at all? So, like, the fact is someone like this, and they're sort of like, I've got wars to do. I have not got time for you and your nonsense. So, yes, if you could probably get away with, like, smacking some kites and just boom, and keep in line, <laughs> then that probably would have happened. I work i just went with it it was a stupidly stupidly funny scene oh i loved it absolutely loved it that had more humor than the rest of the other early movies. i was like okay all right foxy browns we're gonna have a little more more dark humor and I, i'm in for it sin oh dude I, the dick slap hurt around the world apparently how did you enjoy nice a good old-fashioned dick slapping to start a film that was so funny and when i watched it in theaters it tore the house down everybody was dying the i mean we couldn't even hear half of the next scene because everybody's laughter was still going it is such a funny scene and it kind of takes you by surprise you think that she's the nurse is going to come in catch them you know getting a little frisky and you know kind of get mad or whatever and then the scene would move forward but no it gives you that extra little scene of her (laughs) (laughs) oh funny yeah i I love that scene and as far as the me being a little picky on the facial scars yeah you're right i apologize you know what I'm a child of the 80s. This shouldn't bother me. Like, I don't know why I still have sometimes this 2023 brain on when I'm watching some of these films. Like, I know. Like, I went through these films. I know these movies. that They're not always realistic. That's that's hilarious. I've never even, like, thought that, oh, you know, he looks fine or whatever. Um, I, but I watched a black exploitation film, The Thing with Two Heads. I don't know if, you've, if either one of you have watched it. Oh, my God. That movie is so freaking funny. 
funny where they literally <laughs> put have a, a a racist white man and a a, a black man have two heads in one body. <laughs> it is the funniest movie. It is so out there. But I mean, some bandages on some guy's face like that doesn't even phase me, or some bruises on his face doesn't phase me when I'm seeing a two headed <laughs> guy on a motorcycle. <laughs> Definitely a movie you should watch, by the way. It's it's out there. It's pretty out there. <laughs> what I do enjoy about this movie is there are two fight scenes in it that come out of left field, but they're just, they're great. And the first one you mentioned earlier, Elwood, and that is the sudden street fight. So he's got his dick slapped, his face looks pretty, and for some reason he's being allowed to leave the hospital, but yet has to come back later to be discharged. Whatever. I mean, at this point, we'll just keep rolling with it. And then they run into some guy she knows on the street, and he's like, watch this. And you're like, okay. And then he starts to fight some dude out of the blue, and he's kind of getting his ass kicked, and then some other dudes jump in, and they whoop his ass, and then all of a sudden, as you said, they put him in a car, and they're going to put him on a train, and that motherfucker's getting the fuck out of town. You're kind of like, what? I was like, what just happened? Why did that just happen? Like, it just was so random. But when you start a movie with a dick being slapped, honestly, everything is game as soon as something like that happens. What was your initial reaction when you saw this bizarre street fight that just suddenly breaks out? It's weird, because now in the context of, like, as life moves on, but, like, inner city L.A. seems like a lot tougher now, and even in the 80s, than this little skirmish in the streets over some guy who's they're going to send out of town because this dude is selling drugs on the street corner, and we're putting him on a train and send him somewhere else. I just thought I was like, all right. Hi, right, cool. Cool. Good luck. Yeah, I mean, for this one, I mean, it's always right from the start. I mean, when you've got that uh, funky title scene of uh, Pam Grier doing the the kung fu kicks <laughs> and uh, whatnot, which for some reason always makes me think of Boots and by Do America. It's like a couple of guys with fire in their ass. <laughs> it's like <laughs> then those two two scenes for some reason are just conjoined in my head. But um, yeah, I mean, it's obviously street justice. These are like the guardian angels of this uh, this particular hood. They're taking matters into their own hand because obviously the police aren't going to do anything. So they're set up their vigilante force. And we'll see other movies of this era like Vigilante, where you'll see like the common man is like the police are failing us. So we're going to go and get street justice. And these guys are a little more organized because I said they got the car waiting, ready to throw the guy in after they do a bit of slack food, <laughs> which normally they're just like either shoot someone or they'll just beat the hell out of them and leave them on the street. So the fact that they've got a way to dispose of the guys puts them a league ahead of some of these guys. But yeah, it's uh, it's a fun brawl, really, isn't it? There's no finesse to it. There's no sort of like fancy no. music to it. Well, the guy who starts the fight the is getting his ass kicked at the beginning, and then he gets they gets fought across the street, and then someone else jumps in, and then they finally beat him up. I was like, I wasn't sure who was supposed to win, and I wasn't sure why Jack and them were standing there watching it. I thought the thought the dick slap guy was going to get into the fight with him, but that didn't happen. Sin, your your thoughts on this? Get the fuck out of our town! Fight that happens. <laughs> I think honestly, it's just for entertainment to be. I mean, it's just uh, let's throw this in here, and I mean, it's just as much makes as much sense as the whole dick slap. I mean, it's funny and it's just entertaining, and I think that's just really the whole purpose of it. I don't think there was too much to think about in that scene. It's been it's pretty random though. Is it as random as the lesbian bar fight scene? Oh, because that scene. was. That that, w- that one, it was a better fight scene, and it was absolutely bizarre, and yet at the same time, in a great way, also very entertaining. I was like, I don't know why this had to happen, but I am glad that it did happen. I love that they start the fight with Pam because she thinks she's moving on her girl, 
And then once the fight starts, it like the whole room splits in like a WWE match <laughs> into like 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 heroes and villains. Like all of a sudden it's like like they it's like one's like or they're joining Pam's side for no reason. Like it was this weird thing. Like it was like this powder keg of lesbians wanted to fight each other, but they needed one tipping point. And Pam Greer coming in and talking to some girl that some of them thought was hitting on. That starts the whole thing. It's like just the whole bar was like just waiting for something. And that was the tipping point. How did you enjoy the lesbian bar fight scene? This movie is a whole is just a complete different beast of coffee, even though the two films are very similar. This one's a lot lighter, a lot more fun. And as you mentioned already, you get scenes as I said, such as the lesbian bar fight when they send her to the farm where they're going to get her hooked on smack. <laughs> the fact we have Huggy Bear from Starsky and Hutch shows up as a idiot brother. Yes, yes. And I think he gets shot in the dick as well. I think he does. Yeah. Yes, he does. He's... Yes. <laughs> yeah, before he gets killed. Yeah, he gets shot in the dick in the cack. You know what? <laughs> when I was on your show, your show is a lot of penis trauma in Asian cinema, so I thought I'd bring you back into the fold. A lot of penis trauma in these two films. We have a reoccurring theme of penis trauma that seems to follow the film picks that we do. Welcome <laughs> I, in. Thinking, she goes to a bar and she meets some random pilot, again played by Sid Haig, who happens <laughs> to be the same pilot who's involved in this whole operation. And I love it at the end, by the end of this movie, all these different elements come together. So we've got, like, the street <laughs> justice team who, like, weird. Yeah. <laughs> and, so, and we've got Sid Haig's pilot, who's obviously the key pilot that they need. And uh, I just love that so all it fun. takes is he doesn't know her. She throws herself at him in a bar, and he's willing to risk everything by flying her on these drug runs. Because it's Pam No, no. But I'm just saying, it's like, it just, I was like, oh, like the things that the that some of the guys do is you just like, oh, man, that's insanity. <laughs> Why would they even do yeah. this? But yeah, no, this, this, just... this movie definitely feels like, it feels like they were so excited that Coffee did so well. They're like, we got to make another movie with, with Jackie and they're, or with Jesus Christ, with Pam. I'll get, get her name right eventually. And they're just like, we're going to throw this one together. They're like, well, what do we do? We're like, let's take the same formula. We'll just add a few different twists and it's the boom. And we'll throw her in it because it's the year after. And you can feel like there's a little more storyline, a little more thought into coffee. And then when we get to this one. It is pretty much, I mean, they open the movie with it. It's pretty much slapdickery the entire time. It's pretty much a different. It's definitely a different film. Miss Electric, your feeling? Um, on the bar, on the bar fight, the, the on all of it, on the whole, the whole unspooling of this film because it just starts to go fucking. Well, the bar scene, that scene is like my favorite. I, I, I can't wait till that scene comes out because it's so freaking funny. It makes me laugh so bad. The same with the with coffee in uh, when she puts that salad bowl over the other girl. <laughs> <laughs> the scenes are just so funny, but um, yeah, that bar scene. I always remember. I always show that bar scene to like anybody who's never seen uh, Foxy Brown or any of Pam's um, movies because that part is just so it's just so out of left field. But I mean, I guess not so much because I mean, you have the dick slab, you have the random fight, you have so much <laughs> random shit that happens, and then you have like we're randomly in a gay bar with a bunch of women, and <laughs> they all just start fighting each other. <laughs> it's so. Funny. And you can't so. make it up. It's like they wanted to fight the entire time, and they just waited. They were just they're like, uh, you know, it's like, mm, I want to punch this bitch in the face. I just wish someone would give me a reason. And then all of a sudden, Foxy Brown comes walking and like, we fighting bitches? It's just absolutely <laughs> insane. There is a part of me that wishes at once, maybe in this last film of Tarantino's, that he'll just have one of those just... You know what? Like, I hope he just says, you know what? Fuck it. I'm not going to try to make it the next greatest thing. I'm just going to take all the things that I love. I'm just going to make them just the way they were made. I'm not going to try to make them better. I'm just going to put them together 
in this way. Just have these bizarre, someone's dick gets slapped and lesbians <laughs> fight each other for no reason. Just fucking go crazy with it because that was insanity. Like there was so much going on. Just like, what the fuck? Well, I mean, even the drug rings. I will say this. It did seem like in the 70s to infiltrate a gang, at least as a female, was very easy. <laughs> you just show up. You show your titties. Gang, you're in. I, that's it. It's all the requirement is show up. Here's my breasts. You're in the gang. And we'll start giving you all the secrets. You can take a plane ride while I'm dropping off cocaine or whatever they were selling. It was very, very, uh, and then, yeah, like you said, then all of a sudden the street justice team shows up. It was like, all right, look well, at this. Well, Foxy Brown was originally a sequel for, for coffee. That's how it was yeah. written. And then uh, I guess the whatever the production company or didn't want it to be didn't want to make any more sequels and that's when Jack Jack Hill says that that with a little bit of coke and his uh his uh, pen and paper that that's how he started rewriting Foxy Brown and yeah no you can tell <laughs> you can sense. tell yeah no the the lesbian scene coke induced dick slap scene coke induced even the fight in the 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 vigilante fight in the beginning you're like Coke induced. None of it makes sense. None of it makes sense. It's just all over the place. But in a, like I said, in a glorious way, exploitation films are fun because of the ridiculousness of them. But yet you have fun in them. You know, it's not like you're going to sit down and watch a movie. I'll take a shit on a few of them, like a Michael Bay film, maybe, or maybe an Avatar, and you go, oh, it's a beautiful screensaver, and you're just kind of like, wow, they spent a lot of money on that movie, and you're just like, eh, didn't do anything for me. But yeah, you can sit down and watch this $300 piece of shit that's made, and you go, that dude got his dick slapped, and then there was a lesbian bar, like, you have more memorable moments from these movies that are just insane than you do from these billion-dollar productions that sometimes we get thrown our way these days, so... My hat's off to the coked-up Jack Hill and his cock slaps. Well, she also joined a modeling agency that's a, yes. a front for a prostitution ring. And she doesn't even like any services. So she walks in walks in. it's like, I know the deal that's happening here. <laughs> so, and they're like, come in our organization. Yes. Yes. And is it, I'm trying to remember if it's this one or if it's coffee where she turns up and she's got her hair down, which is a look I don't like because I'm always like classic fro Pam Grier. But she's got like razor blades hidden in her hair. Because the girl goes to grab her hair, and she's like, "Cause it's like, ah, my hands." <laughs> and it's like, dude, she's like, of, um, see what she wrote. She thought of that herself. Uh, Pam Greer, the razor. <laughs> it's. I mean, when you tell Jack Hill, who's clearly on cocaine this year, you know, he made so much money off of coffee, he'd spend it all on cocaine. And he was like. Whatever you want to do, baby. <laughs> We're going to do whatever you want to do. I think that movie grossed four. They made the first one on $5,000 and it grossed $4 million. That's fucking insane. Insane. This one grossed less than that, but it had a bigger budget. But most of that budget went to cocaine and dick slaps. There was no other money. This one made about $2.4 million but still think about how much that is really if you do that inflation coffee made four million but it it, uh five thousand dollars was the the budget made it in 18 days so that's insane then they made this for 500 for half a mil and made 2.4 so pretty impressive it's a different industry as well when you look at it because at the time they're looking to create product to go into the grindhouses and the drive-ins so they're just churning product out whereas now it's sort of like oh we've got to have a marketing campaign we've got to have all these different Element yeah, the product it's more of a prestige item in like this area is sort of like it's more throwaway so it's sort of like 
what can we do to get buns in butts and teats? And this is why you have like these bizarre elements that appear in these films. Um, <laughs> because they're just like, what can we do to get the audiences in? And obviously exploitation is especially key in that because it's sort of like, what elements can we exploit to sell our picture? And then we'll sell it as that. Funny thing is, is there are moments in this film that we even forget that there are two hillbilly heroin dealers who work on cars and sing and rapists. Like it's a whole thing that even as horrible as that is the other stuff that happens you you kind of forget about those two guys because if those two guys show up first it works but the other bizarre stuff has already happened like the lesbian bar fight and her becoming a stripper for high like all these crazy things you go yeah when they take him to the farm i was expecting worse i at the point where we wrote this that may be the only part of the movie he wrote not on cocaine because it felt a little more tame just a little more tame than the rest of the stuff even though she does set them both on glorious fire which the fact that the one guy just kept singing the same song over and over again i was like i was happy when she said him on fire i was like shut the fuck i'm sorry sing something else something else and now it's time to present the evidence so the influences in this film are not as many as obviously we got from the first because like you said they are pretty much similar but there's cocaine involved in the writing of this film number one now the movie's title design was used for the title design of Jackie Brown. Tarantino himself has gone on record as saying that he liked the title design for Foxy Brown and put it for Jackie Brown. Number two. Obviously, Jackie's last name in the film Jackie Brown pays tribute to her character from this film in Foxy Brown. Number three. And then, this film definitely helped to inform QT on how he was going to, well, this and the other, to write women revenge flicks. I'm sure there are other films that he's seen, but definitely the strong female character who goes through all, I mean, especially with The Bride, I would say a lot of The Bride has some of the Pam Greer characters from these films in it where you're going to go through some shit. You're going to go through some horrible, horrible shit, but at the end, you're the one who's going to slap the dick. So those are the three I gleaned from this bizarre Coke-induced second feature. Did either of you see some stuff in here? I will say I'm disappointed that the dick slap did not make it in the Tarantino universe. I'm going to be honest honest with you. Now seeing it, that's one of the things I wish he would somehow find a way to bring in. Maybe his last film will be a dick slap. But go ahead. Feel free to add anything else that I may have missed from this film in Foxy Brown. I can't think of it. I honestly can't think of it. I think think you... Got it, obviously, right with the with the font choice and how everything you know looks for Jackie Brown and stuff like that. I don't think he drew too much inspiration from from this movie, other than just like the normal tropes that come from these type of films. I think coffee was more heavily. I think, he, and I think he's even said that he thinks coffee is one of the best action films ever made. So, I, as much as I know that he probably obviously loves Foxy Brown, uh, I don't think he drew too much from it. More so for coffee, I, I, I can't think of anything that stuck out. And usually, I, I can like pinpoint like some little tiny thing, but I don't think so. Not not, not nothing that comes to mind anyway. Mr. Jones? No, it's uh, the problem is that we both coffee and Foxy. They're so similar in many ways. It's just the tone's lighter in Foxy Brown than it is in Coffee. Coffee is much more of a revenge flick. Foxy Brown is just sort of like she's out there. T- to kick ass and take names it's much more of a straightforward yeah. sort of like action flick the stakes are less high yeah it's just basically a revenge flick she's out there to get revenge for her, her dead boyfriend um obviously with coffee it's there's much more the link there the fact that it was like her sister was hooked on smack and there's there's much more emotional sort of heft to it and i think the emotional side carries more across into jackie brown but um certainly when you look at the way that pam is carrying herself in in 
in Foxy Brown. I think that's certainly it's laying the foundation for the character that that we view Jackie Brown as because as we said already that she we got this idea of who this character is compared to, from her previous world. We're just sort of like it's almost like we're picking up this character like twenty years later or whatever it is, um, and just like this is where they are now and this is where we're gonna continue the story, but the names have changed. And I think as well, it's when you look at Jackie Brown, it's hard not to obviously look at the other actresses of this era, people like Gloria Hendry, Vanessa McGee, and most Keely, of course, would be Tamara Dobson, who did uh, Cleopatra Jones and Cleopatra Jones's uh, City of Gold, which I say is another big one, even though Pangra is obviously like the queen of exploitation, uh, black exploitation cinema. It's hard not to obviously look at that performance and see like the what the other elements of those uh, the, those leading ladies brought to their films and how it would have like influenced his writing of Jackie Brown and obviously Pam Greer makes her own choice as an actress how she's going to play this character but obviously in design the characters I think he sort of draws inspiration from the other actresses of the series not just uh, Coffee and Foxy Brown that are the key inspirations here but um, yeah I think this one as I said because this one's lighter it's harder to sort of see the inspiration sort of as clearly as it is with Coffee because Coffee and Jackie Brown the characters more in tune with each other it's sort of like this woman sort of like battling against the struggle and just trying to correct some wrongs uh, in her life and obviously at the same time exploiting the criminal organization for that benefit but um yeah foxy brown's just a, a fun time though <laughs> so it's hard to criticize it <laughs> and now it's time to read the verdict and now the point of finding out do we believe that qt was inspired by this film or did he rip it off miss electric well that would just say he was just inspired he's obviously inspired by a lot of different things i feel like he maybe reviewed these films leading up to creating jackie brown and then got even more inspiration to finish up the the start of kill bill and i think that that's probably why we have kill bill is because he was like shit i want to make a rep- more of like a revenge matic type film like that where you know but then bring in some obviously some more asian kung fu type films uh, influence as well but as, as far as foxy brown i think it's just it's just a little bit of influence here and there but i don't think it's as severe as how coffee was you could see a lot, a lot of things in that in that film but i think more so like uh elwood had said where it's just like the revenge aspect that he kind of like carries on over but that's about it i don't think i don't think it's anything major as i've seen i've seen worse in other films i've seen things where he's like oh my god that's the exact same scene or something like that like i'm just like that is so identical or that is so tarantino i see where he got that from you know or why he used that or whatever these films is just very very inspired by more so than 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 ripping them off in a sense Mr. Jones. No, I think this is much more of an homage than a, a rip-off, certainly when you look at films such as like Reservoir Dogs and um, being like a keen example of it where he could be like accused of ripping something off because the four or five scenes that are shot similar to uh, City of Fire. With this one, I think it's more just laying the foundations for how he's going to write the character Jackie Brown um, or rework the character, should I say, because uh, obviously in Run Punch, it's a man and he said that when he was reading that book that he saw Pam Greer in this and that's why he changed it and Emily said you know it works for what you did and I'm guessing what you did with the film you it totally works and I think everything that he's writing for Pam 
Pitt's character in that film, he's drawing inspiration from these films. He's drawing inspirations from some other films like the uh, Women in, in Prison movies, like uh, Black Mama, White Mama, uh, Big Birdcage, Big Dollhouse, those sort of uh, movies that she was doing with like New World. So all, a lot of these like black exploitation sort of the 70s era Pam Grier is where he's drawing the key inspirations when he's writing the character Jackie Brown. And then obviously when she comes in and she makes adjustments and obviously because of obviously the time that's passed, I mean, she's not going to play the character the same way that she was playing it if she was 20. She's obviously had some more life experience uh, at that point and she's going to play and the character as well is older. So you can't just play a character who's like it, supposed in like their 40s, I want to say. Yeah. Um, like they're in their 20s, it's not going to work. So we obviously see what this character will be like um, a bit further down down the line. And I think that's the key thing with these films is just drawing inspiration of how her character is. Um, he's sort of like taking that black exploitation era, Pam Grier, then juxtaposes it into uh, his bag swap thriller. In the case of Foxy Brown, we find the defendant not guilty of the crime of being a talentless hack who rips other people's movies off. Let's ask our guest some fucking questions. All right, and now we are going to wrap this bad boy up with our final three questions, which you both got. And I will start with Miss Electric. Which of these two films that we covered did you enjoy more? And which would you recommend to my listeners? Miss Electric? I think Foxy Brown is a is a better film in the sense of story. I, I don't know. Like I, it, I feel more drawn into the storyline. And it's weird quirkiness and dick slaps and all that stuff you know i, I think it's for more I, I think it just draws you in a little bit more it's more entertaining in that sense but coffee is very raw and i but i really like that i think hard for me to choose one but i think foxy brown i always like i feel i feel like i can't keep my eyes off foxy brown even though i really really love coffee i would have to probably give it to foxy as far as um which one i like more but I would recommend people to watch Coffee. If that, I know that probably doesn't make any sense. Just because I think in, in that order, it makes more sense, especially because it was technically originally written as a sequel. It makes more sense that way. It feels a little bit more sophisticated as well. I, I, I feel like he, Coke aside, he spent a lot more time with storyline, with developing the characters, and with uh, with coffee, it was just, okay, sh- this is what happened, this is what she's doing, and this is how she's going to end it. You kind of already know, you already already see where everything's going, and it's very straightforward. And then the other movie is like, okay, well, we're going to take her here, there, and everywhere. <laughs> you know, like, she goes all over the place. It, 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 it really is like like a bunch of stories in one. It's very, like, feels very Pulp Fiction-y, you know, where you you have this story here, and then this story there, and, and then it all kind of comes together in a way. You know, they, they, they really <laughs> put her in different elements. It's just, it's very interesting to watch, but I would definitely watch them in order i would more so suggest watching them both but definitely coffee and then foxy if it feels right in that order i i can't really imagine seeing it the other way around mr jones uh for myself i'd watch coffee i think they watch coffee first before you watch foxy brown i think you you appreciate foxy brown all the more when you've seen coffee and especially if you're watching back to back it feels like a nice bit of light relief because coffee coffee is really hard-edged but at the same time there's so many elements that are in coffee that are sort of toned down more from foxy brown uh like when she's chastising the guy when she's got the uh, shotgun on 
on him and it's sort of like you blasphemous <laughs> don't fiend and that scene's uh, also shown in evan legend uh the cop she's the big jacket uh coffee fan and she's there watching that particular scene so i like um when it as i say whenever i think of like pam Grier, it's pam Grier and coffee that i would think of so that's why i would recommend watching coffee first and then obviously watch uh, foxy brown after but watching both back to back that's like the most fun time it's like it's the best double feature it's sort of like you have the hard revenge story with coffee and then you get something lighter with foxy brown and it's kind of like ends in a high note it's that little bit of relief that you get with foxy brown whereas if it if he made like another coffee that would have been rough <laughs> rough afternoons watching <laughs> two coffees back to back so uh yeah it's watch coffee first and then watch one of her like lighter pitch watch something like the arena or as i said black mama white mama something one of her more sort of like action centered flicks but no, if you want to understand why people are as obsessed with Pam Grier as they are, then definitely watch Coffee. I think it embodies everything of that 70s era Pam Grier. They're sort of like, why we're just so obsessed. Why is she is such an icon? It's just all embodied in that film. So, Mr. Jones, we'll start with you now for question two. Did watching these two films open your eyes to any new references or influences within Tarantino films? Uh, no, I can't say, say it did. I think this conversation certainly has highlighted a, a lot of uh, the most minor details I have to miss and that you <laughs> take great delight in pointing out to me. It's that whole conversation of why the cat's important in Alien again. It's just that I always, whenever we hang out, I always notice these minor details that uh, I never noticed before. And I think, if anything, it just makes me appreciate her character in Jackie Brown more from having watch this and then going off to watch jackie brown again just to see like to see how she shifts the character i think it just makes me appreciate her more her work more as an actress and the range that she has she's not just this catchphrase uh spouting hmm. badass it's, you know she's got real sort of depth and there's real sort of thought and intelligence behind her character and the choices she makes with the performance it's not just oh here's a hot chick with a fro and a <laughs> and uh eye catch at wardrobe it's it's like no there's like some real thought and effort to put into how she's the choices she's making as an actress there so jackie brown all wit no tit don't forget it's great no it's a catchphrase i might get a tattooed now i might get a tattoo oh <laughs> miss electric your feeling on did any of watching these two films open your eyes to any new references or influences um i think one of the first time that i watched it yeah i think I didn't even know that he was using all of the music that he used um, from Coffee, uh, Roy Ayers music, um, and putting it in Jackie Brown at the time. And so I remember watching Coffee and being like, oh my God, that's the song. And being like so obsessed with Jackie Brown at the time, I was like, oh my God, it's those songs. He got them from this movie. Like I was freaking out. I think seeing that, I don't think I noticed too much, um, maybe certain scenes or things like that that were super specific at least when i first watched it later on yeah but um the music in, was was a huge deal i i remember hearing i think it's when they're at that at that strip club and the the girls uh, i don't even know what it is the romantic strip club or whatever it is that they go to <laughs> i don't know what it is because i mean it could be a strip club it could be just this random woman dancing but it's that specific scene where it starts off with her dancing nude and it's i can't remember exactly the name of the song but it's obviously roy Ayers. And I remember hearing it and being like so excited because they it was another song from Jackie. I'm like I and I can pin, I can remember like the scene. I could see the Jackie Brown scene in my head and being so like thrilled. 
to just be like, oh my God, I can't believe he used this stuff. No wonder, no wonder he loves Pam Greer and loves these movies and why he, you know, decided to carry that, that on over to Jackie. Good answer. You will close us out and we'll let Mr. Jones have the last word. Did your opinion on Tarantino as a writer-director change after watching these films and learning how the sausage is made, so to speak, and if so, in what way? I don't think I had... I, I think I respected him more um, as a as a writer, as a filmmaker, to see the things that he... And it's, it's the smallest little things sometimes, the things that he takes from these films, whether it's these films or other films that have inspired not even just Jackie, but other, other ones in his uh, list of movies... It's great seeing the most tiniest detail in older movies in 70s, 60s, whatever era. And you're just like, oh, my God. Like, it, it, it's always that, oh, my God moment when I'm watching some of these films that I don't even think. I'm not even watching it because of Tarantino. And I'm just watching and I see a specific, very specific shot. And I'm like, I know for a fact Quentin watched this and just was like, that's mine. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. I, I know it's some somewhere. And, I'm like, and sometimes I'll even do it. I'm like, dude, that shot is so Quentin. And I'll look it up. And sure enough, he's like, oh, I'm inspired by it, blah, blah, blah. And then that movie will be part of that list. Yeah, I just respect him a lot more. I, I like that he gives so much respect to, to cinema as a whole. He loves movies so much that and he wants to draw more audiences to these films that he grew up with like he has such a soft spot for all, for his his childhood and his childhood was nothing but film like he i don't i almost feel sometimes like he's never grown up like he's always trying to relive his his youth and that eye-opening experience of uh, of cinema and him he is so inspired by that and trying so hard to recreate that in his movies and i just i love him for that i really do mr jones for myself i mean i don't when i watch like the inspirations for his work i don't think it changed my opinion of tarantino as a director i sort of view tarantino my opinion of tarantino through his own work when i'm looking at this it's more i'm thinking of like jack hill's skill as a director so my focus is really on jack hill because he's the one calling the shots here i'm not like going oh wow tarantino like took this shot and isn't he, he great he's sort of like when i'm in the tarantino mindset or whenever i'm watching anything it's in the mindset of like the director who's calling the the shots to it's not like how this would like influence someone else it's sort of like if i watch kurosawa i'm not thinking oh well this is really influenced francis Ford coppola did took all these shots and pure inspiration here i'm as i said my mind didn't think of like who they're in, influencing it's just really like what they're presenting to me as the audience and i think if anything it makes me really sort of appreciate jack hill's skills and ability as a director what he's doing with this story and certainly when you look at other films in this area and similar sort of stories of how they're not done with the finesse and the characters aren't as well-rounded or as memorable as the ones here and it's sort of like this perfect meeting of minds obviously you got jack hill the director who knows how to get things done um in terms of like the directing and at the same time he's got this great cast of like memorable characters and certainly character actors uh in the case of like sid haig that just really add all these like extra layers to the film um and just make it so memorable but i think obviously far away i think the most important factor here is just pam Greer. 
Pound, if Pound Grid was not in this movie, I don't think it would have been uh, the same. It would have, would have been as effective. And even if we like juxtapose and put like one of the other sort of key actors of this era, I just don't think it would have worked. They would have played it differently, and it would have been a different movie, and we would have had a different conversation about this. But because I say it's Pound Grid playing it, and the way that she chooses to play it, they sort of like tough yet vulnerable, and this girl who's sort of like she's um, able to like use the bit you take what she knows and like use it in all these sort of situations at the same time just throw like completely outlandish situations like oh let's have a lesbian fight scene let's have a have a plane crash into a building and <laughs> stuff it's these like random elements and I think as I said this is like that meeting point between her talent as an actress and Jack Hill's pure insanity behind the camera <laughs> where he's just like white knuckling <laughs> to get the thing done And that's a wrap on this month's episode. I would once again like to thank my special guests, Mr. Elwood Jones, host of the Asian Cinema Film Club, the Movies and Tea Podcast, the TV Good Sleep Bad Podcast, and the Game Work Podcast, and Miss Sin Electric, musician, composer, and lead singer of alt-rock bands Noise of Rumors, and Kid Electric for joining me today. I had a fucking blast investigating whether or not Tarantino referenced or blatantly stole from the movies that influenced his only film adapted from source material, Jackie Brown. Now you can find the link to both of my guest podcasts, music, and socials in the show notes. And as always, you can become a member of the Church of Tarantino by following us on all our socials. Those links can be found in the show notes as well. Now, if you would be so kind and take a moment to like, review, subscribe, and follow us, the church would greatly appreciate it as it will help other Tarantino fans like yourself find the show. So be sure to join me again in two weeks as Frank Hannon, co-host of the Bachata Talk podcast, joins me once again for our monthly hymnal devotional. This time, we're taking a deep dive into the Jackie Brown soundtrack. So until then, I'm the Reverend Scott K. May Tarantino be with you always. This has been a man with an exceptional beard production.